done of a business. Hello, people. Hello, hello, hello. I believe we have a presidential race going on. I believe we have Hillary Clinton taking on Bernie Sanders, and I believe we have Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden going at it. That's what's happening, and that's what's happening early in today's show. Uh, We also have Tulsi Gabbard decided to sue Hillary Clinton. We're going to talk a little bit about that. That'll be the third segment on today's show. Um, Crystal Ball went on CNN and just absolutely lit up a corporate Democrat extraordinaire by the name of Karen, Karen Finney? Is it Karen Finney? I'm not sure if it's Karen. Karen feels like it's not correct, but her last name is Finney. She's a, you know, like a Hillary Clinton, former Hillary Clinton staffer. So I'm going to play that for you. She, she laughs at uh, verifiable polls. She laughs at polling numbers that don't give her the result that she wants. Um, And then later on, we got the return of the Bernie bro smear. It's back in full effect, and they're doing it because now they're getting desperate. They're getting desperate. They see that America's dad, Bernard Sanders, is uh, cruising and doing very well in the polls. So uh, they're going to throw everything at him. They're going to throw the kitchen sink at him. Um, As I say this, I'm literally going to be wearing only my basketball shorts for the rest of today's show because it is warm in the studio yet again. Yet again. Okay. Oh, goodness gracious me. Okay. Uh, now that I have only basketball shorts on, um, we're going to go after President Trump later in the show because he did uh, in a – he was at – the event in Davos, Davos, the World Economic Forum, whatever you want to call it. And, um, man, he went full uh, climate change denialism, which is perhaps unsurprising, but full rah-rah free market capitalism. He spoke about the deficit and made less than no sense. I mean, it was flat-out embarrassing. Um, Later on, we got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Tucker Carlson, Uh, We will be talking about Glenn Greenwald and the situation in Brazil where the government is coming after him and, um, you know, persecuting him for doing the crime of journalism. So there's a lot of stuff to get to. Without further ado, let's get started and we'll rewind a little bit and go to Hillary versus Bernie. A couple of days ago, the news broke that Hillary Clinton was firing shots at Bernie Sanders. And um, she said she doesn't know if she can support him, even in a general election. Even if it's Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump one-on-one, she said she doesn't know if she could support him. And she also went on to say, quote, nobody likes him. She said he's a career politician, and he's, he's like duping people, and she feels bad for people who are falling for his whole shtick. Um, I mean, there's a lot there, and most of it is hilarious and annoying at the same time. But Hillary Clinton accusing somebody else of being a career politician is rich. <laughs> because Hillary Clinton, Hillary and Bill, over the course of their uh, careers, they've raised, I forget the exact number, but I know it was billions of dollars. I'm not sure if it was over $1 billion or $3 billion between uh, both of them. And, of course, this is money 
coming from corporate PACs, for example. This is money coming from wealthy donors. Uh, Bernie Sanders raises his money through small-dollar donations. So even though he's been a politician for a very long time, in many ways he's like the exact kind of Washington outsider you would want to leave the country because he's not part of the swamp. He doesn't play the swamp game. He's not corrupt. He has his principles, he has his policy positions, and he fights for them. In the case of Hillary, I mean, it's all for sale. There's video of you know, Hillary Clinton taking both sides on virtually every issue going back over the course of her career. And that's not a coincidence. That has a lot to do with the corrupting influence of big money in politics. So for her to say he's a career politician, I mean, that's uh, welcome to the Twilight Zone, welcome to Bizarro World. That's not a criticism Hillary Clinton can levy against anybody. <laughs> so, uh, but to the idea of, well, I'm not sure I could support him in a general election. Okay, well, you talk all the time about unity, 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 and how the Democrats and the left needs to come together to defeat the big bad Republicans, and you just um, proved that game is what we knew it was all along. You just proved that it's a ruse, that when centrist candidates, when corporatists talk about unity, what they mean is, hey, if you're on the left, shut up and fall in line and vote for the, the centrist Democrat because it's as good as you're going to get. That's what you mean when you talk about unity. So it doesn't cut the other direction. If a lefty wins a primary, all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if I can support him in a general. Oh, okay, so you don't care about unity at all, and in fact... The, the driving force in your politics, apart from the corruption, is a belief in centrism and corporate neoliberalism. So, listen, bottom line is, I'm not even mad about that aspect of it. They disagree with us. They disagree with us. They're centrists. They have a totally different ideology. That's fine. But let's be honest and upfront about what our beliefs are and how that informs our strategy. So, you know, just don't tell people to unify. Don't tell people to shut up and fall in line because you're not going to do it. You say you're not going to do it. You know that makes you a hypocrite, but you don't care because for you it really is more about the corrupting influence of big money and how you think that should be part of the system and your neoliberal ideology. So I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't have a problem with that if you just weren't a hypocrite and were honest and upfront with it. And if you said to the left, hey, in the last election, everybody who decided they wanted to vote for Jill Stein, who am I to browbeat them? Who am I to tell them you got to fall in line and support me? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. If they don't agree with me, why would they support me? If they don't like me as a candidate, why would they come out to vote at all? Some people, you know, went for Jill Stein. Some people went for Gary Johnson. Some people stayed home. Um, most, the overwhelming majority of Bernie voters in the 2016 primary did end up uh, voting for Hillary in the general election. But spare me the sanctimonious garbage when they, like, look down at everybody on the left who has standards and principles, and they're like, you better fall in line because of unity. Feeding the right is the most important thing. Unless, of course, the lefty wins the primary, in which case I'm gonna, all that's out the window, and I say, no, I'm not sure I can unify. Um, now... Hillary, or excuse me, Bernie responded to Hillary saying, um, nobody likes you, Bernie, by saying, that's not true. On a good day, my wife likes me. That's what Bernie said. Then Hillary responded to Bernie 
saying that, or actually this was more of a response to the, you know, just the outcry of outrage against Hillary. People were like, wow, so you are a hypocrite and you don't believe in unity. And then she comes out on Twitter and says, quote, I thought everyone wanted my authentic, unvarnished views. But to be serious, the number one priority of our country and world is retiring Trump. And as I always have, I will do whatever I can to support our nominee. Now, that's interesting because it's just it's a contradiction, which is your, you know, authentic, unvarnished views. You just said before, no, I'm not sure I can back him in a, in a general election and I don't like him and nobody likes him. That's what you said. And now you're saying, hey, I'll, I'm just giving my authentic, unvarnished views, but OK, I'll support him. Were the authentic views that you're not going to support them or you don't want to support them or are the authentic views that you're going to support them? See what I'm saying? So somehow, even after her political career is over, she is still managing to flip-flop and contradict herself. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's stunning. There was no, like, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, I'll say the thing everybody wants me to say, but it's all, I'm also going to semi-double down by saying I would just give him my authentic unvarnished views. Well, again, then which one is it? Now, listen, Bernie's response. I, I spoke about this a few times already, but I wanted to bring it up in a standalone segment. I would have been a little more aggressive. Now, you know, I understand the counterargument now. The counterargument is, and I think Corrin did a good job of making the counterargument to me on Kyle and Corrin, where he was saying, like, listen, man, she's really disliked, that's true, and people see what she's doing here for what it is. They see that it's, like, really petty, and it's a high school-like thing to say, and she comes across as not good here. So everybody sees that, everybody acknowledges that, and for Bernie to, like, almost stay above the fray and be like, I'm not even going to acknowledge it. I'll make a joke and say, my wife likes me on good days. That, that actually verifies what he's been doing with his campaign all along. Namely, like, hey, I'm the issues dude. I'm the policy dude. You want to actually improve your life? Come vote for me. You want to actually, you know, get Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and legalizing marijuana, so on and so forth, all these great policy positions? You come to me. So... There's an argument to be made for, I'm not going to touch it, I'm not going to get in the gutter, I'm going to be above the fray, and everybody's going to recognize what Hillary's doing here, and all of everybody's anger will be directed at her. I, I perhaps wasn't seeing that perspective in the initial aftermath of this, but I do see that that's very possible now. Like I wouldn't be surprised if we see polling conducted after this Hillary thing, and Bernie goes up even more. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a two- or three-point bump from this as well. Um, by the way, a, a new round of polls did come out, but I'm not sure if they were commissioned after the Hillary thing. And Bernie is doing really well. He's got a giant lead in New Hampshire, which is awesome. And he's got um, a three-point lead nationally on Joe Biden. So, again, work's not done. Super Tuesday is going to be a huge issue. we got to work, we got to work, we got to work. But there was a good round of polls. I just don't think it came after the Hillary Clinton thing. But – you know, the thing I initially wanted Bernie to do and still part of me wanted Bernie to do in the aftermath of Hillary saying this is just a, a devastating one-liner, you know? 
uh, I don't need lectures on likability from somebody with a 36% approval. Could have said that. <laughs> Could have said, uh, well, if she doesn't like me, I wonder why, why did she want me to campaign for 37 times? Said something like that. Um, she lost to Donald Trump. I will be beating Donald Trump. Something like that. Just all I wanted was like a little, a little sign of fight in Bernie. And the reason why I say that is actually very simple. That's what Trump did that worked. Now you could you can make arguments. Okay, the Republicans and the Democrats are different, so on and so forth. Fine, make that argument if you want to make that argument. I'm not sure I buy that. Um, I think his strength could work, but that's what Trump did. Every time a GOP establishment goon came at Trump, he flipped it back on them and punched them in the face, and it worked. And the reason it worked is nobody likes the Republican establishment. Now, by the same token, nobody likes the Democratic establishment. Nobody does. Nobody does. A group of uh, idiots on Wall Street and a group of idiots in D.C. who are part of the club. Only members of the club like the club. So, you know, if you punch those people in the face, it helps you. But he didn't do it. So, you know, it is what it is. He took the high road. I hope it helps him either way. My initial instinct is you got to fight back a little bit. But this also does say something about um, Hillary's worldview, which is she says nobody likes him. He's literally the most popular senator in the country. A poll just came out like a week before she made these comments. That show yet again for, guys, the 11th time in a row he's the most popular senator in the country. So when she says, oh, nobody likes him, what does she mean? She means people in her social circle, people in the club. So she doesn't consider people outside of the club to really be people because she says, well, nobody likes him. Nobody that matters to you. So all, you know, the working people all his broad, diverse coalition, working class, diverse coalition, all those people, unions, anti-war activists, environmental activists, nobody likes them because they don't really count, do they? That says a lot, man. And Bernie should welcome the fact that those people don't like him. That's a good thing. That means he's doing good stuff in Washington, that he doesn't get along with the worst ghouls on the planet. And furthermore, look at Hillary's friends, her and Bill and Jeffrey Epstein, like, <laughs> like, oh, nobody likes him. Wow. I guess he doesn't hang out at like the pedo, pedo island. <laughs> um, and the final thing is Hillary, we like, I don't want you to campaign for him. And I, you know, I actually don't, e don't want you to endorse him either. I, I'm, I'm fine with you not endorsing and not campaigning with him. I would prefer that. But the thing that I do want is for you to get out of the way. Get out of the way. That's all we could ask of Hillary Clinton. Don't endorse him. Don't campaign for him. Just get out of the way. Because, you know, I'm sure everybody had the hunch if Hillary gets involved, she's only going to get involved to try to throw a wrench into, into, you know, his momentum. And that's exactly what's happening. So all we want is 
for you to go into the woods where you were for a while and just stay there permanently. That's all we want. Just go into the woods, chill out. You don't want to go to the woods? Fine. Go to a beach in Costa Rica, sip a margarita, let the, you know, 78 degrees, let the wind gently hit your face. You got a smile on your face. You make sure Bill doesn't wander around to the kiddie pool. Like, listen, that <laughs> that's all we want. We do not want anything extra. We just want the process to unfold as it's supposed to unfold. No more rigging primaries. No more, you know, trying to throw a wrench into what the people want, what the voters want. That's all we ask for. So when she came out and she was like, well, I was just being authentic, but okay, fine, I'll support whoever the nominee is. I actually was thinking like, no, 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 (laughs) no. The part that I most objected to in her original comments was the, you know, nobody likes them. That's the part that I was like, you're you're just wrong and you're ridiculous and you have a 36% approval rating and he's the most popular senator in the country. So who really isn't liked? I believe you're the one who's not liked by actual people at this point in time. Um, so, but, so that was the part that drove me nuts. The part about, like, I'm not sure I can support him, that's fine. That's fine. You know, I really think that the establishment is a paper tiger, and she's the representative of the establishment. She's the representative of the status quo. So we don't need the backing of the paper tiger. We just don't. So anyway, that's my breakdown of this whole thing. I wish Bernie was a little bit more aggressive. But, you know, a couple days removed from the back and forth, you get the sense that he does come out of it looking like a bigger person and looking like he took the high road. And his little quip about, Mo, I'm, my wife likes me on a good day, people are going to go, see, he's like the good guy. He's a serious guy. He cares about the issues. And she's so petty. And she cares. she's, like, all into this personal drama and whatnot. And it, it really does come across as pathetic, you know. But, again, I guess you could say in this instance – they're lucky I wasn't running Bernie's campaign because I would have heavily advised him to hit her with a devastating one-liner and just move on. That's what I would have said. Um, and we have another story coming up in a second that I think is a, is a good example of my philosophy in action and why I think the philosophy I'm advocating for is better, even though it might, may have been a net win that he said what he said in response to Hillary. Okay, next. We have had a roller coaster of a ride over the past few days with people taking shots at Bernie. And uh, with, you know, the drama that's been unfolding. So Bernie Sanders finally hit back at Joe Biden in a way that I think is intelligent. But we got to rewind to when he didn't do that, which was like on the same day. So Bernie has a surrogate by the name of Zephyr Teachout. She's amazing. She's awesome. She's run for uh, governor in New York before. I voted for her. I was happy to vote for her. Um, She is an anti-corruption warrior. She literally wrote a book on corruption, and it's brilliant. Um, So she wrote an article in The Guardian uh, titled something like, Joe Biden has a corruption problem. And she went into excruciating detail about exactly what that corruption problem is. You know, 
exactly how his entire family has gotten wealthy off of his political label, political connections. And this is something she's pointing out, by the way. This is real, and it's bad for what it is, but also it's unquestionably something that will be weaponized by the right if Joe Biden becomes the nominee, which means Joe Biden is not as electable as people think. He has giant problems. Apart from not being coherent, there's also the thing about, like, he will get pummeled on his record. He'll get pummeled on outsourcing deals that he supported, wars that he supported, and detailed evidence of corruption. So she writes this article, all factual stuff. Then Bernie apparently saw this, got mad that one of his surrogates had written this article, and then he instructed everybody in his campaign, listen, reel it in. I don't want you calling him corrupt. Um, Let's stick to just the issues. And um, this is getting too personal, and Joe Biden's a friend of mine, and I don't like that. Now, if he had just done that behind the scenes, I don't agree with him in doing that, but I could stomach it. I could stomach it. The thing I couldn't stomach was he then went out on TV and apologized to Joe Biden. He apologized to him because one of his surrogates called him corrupt. Okay, see, now I'm pissed because, Bernie, we need you to win this race. And what you're doing is I know you think you're being principled, but you're actually bullshitting everybody because Joe Biden is corrupt. And now you're helping him cover for his corruption by you, the most liked senator in the country, apologizing to him because one of your surrogates called him corrupt. That I can't stand for. That I can't stand for. That's actually embarrassing. Now, I get it. He's your personal friend, and you don't want things to get awkward when you see each other or whatever. Fine. But for you to cover up what the truth is, that's unacceptable. Because the reason why people like you, Bernie, is because you fight for the policies that improve people's lives, and you tell the truth. If you are refusing to state the obvious, which is that Joe Biden is corrupt, then you're not so much of a truth teller, now are you? Certainly on that issue, you're not. So that I'm not okay with. I think it was an embarrassing misstep. Um, and guys, it's actually not a personal attack. It's an objective empirical description of reality. That's the thing. And so why is it okay to talk about Joe Biden's abysmal record, but not talk about one of the main reasons why his record is abysmal? It's not just that Joe Biden, you know, whoops, he happened to be wrong on a lot of the major questions that faced him as a politician in his career. No, it's that he was paid to take the wrong position for many of those uh, issues. So the fact that you can't, you could talk about the problem, but not the root of the problem. No, 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 no. I can't stand for that. I can't stand for that. Um, Now, the other argument some people have made is like, the reason why um, Bernie hit the brakes here is that we're about to have an impeachment trial. And in the impeachment trial, the entire Republican counterargument is going to be, well, Joe Biden's corrupt. So Bernie was like, I don't want to give them any ammo in the impeachment trial. So let's, you know, pump the brakes and not say that. I don't know if that theory is true. But even if that theory is true, Bernie is still wrong. You're not allowed to bury the truth for, you know, partisan reasons. No, the truth, truth is always a defense. Truth overrides whatever your little, you know, goofy political calculations are. I don't care about your political calculations. And, by the way, it's a foregone conclusion he's going to get acquitted. It's a foregone conclusion. So why are we pretending like there's still an open question and, ooh, maybe we could find a way to get Trump? It's a giant waste of time. 
again, you know, people might get mad at me for pointing these things out. I don't care. That's the reality of the situation. He's going to get acquitted. This is all a waste of time. Adam Schiff, and he can give grandstanding speeches from now until the end of time, is going to do dicky McGeezacks. It's going to do nothing. So I, I don't know if that's what Bernie was thinking. Whether it is or it isn't, he's still wrong. That's, you know, my take on it. Now, after Bernie Sanders apologizes to Joe Biden, Joe Biden, of course, goes out there and, you know, puffs his chest out like, Bernie apologized to me for the things he said against me. He's going to use this against you until the end of time now, Bernie. He's going to use this against you the rest of the race for sure. Anytime anybody says anything about when Bernie came after you, his response is going to be, he apologized to me. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, 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 he apologized to me. Now you say, well, hold on, Kyle. He only apologized for that specific thing. Joe Biden's already using it, not just in the context of that criticism. He's using it in a more broader sense. Oh, Bernie came after you for X, Y, and Z. He apologized to me. Doesn't matter what the details are. He's just going to say he apologized and then move on. In, in, insanely bad strategy. Now, to thank Bernie Sanders for apologizing to him, what did Joe Biden do? Well, uh, he released an ad accusing Bernie of lying, particularly on Bernie's claims about Biden's record on Social Security. Biden, Bernie's saying Biden has wanted to cut Social Security for decades. And Biden's like, how dare you? You're lying about my record. Watch. As Democrats, we can't launch dishonest attacks against fellow Democrats. We have to beat Donald Trump. Now Bernie's campaign has unleashed a barrage of negative attacks on Joe Biden. They've even accused Joe Biden of supporting Paul Ryan's cuts to Social Security. Bernie's campaign is not telling the truth. Joe Biden has repeatedly voted to save Social Security. He and President Obama beat back Republican attempts to privatize it. And in 2012, Joe Biden even said he didn't support those cuts. Paul Ryan, we will be no part of a voucher program or the privatization of Social Security. Biden's plan protects Social Security and will increase benefits. Bernie's negative attacks won't change the truth. Joe Biden is still the strongest Democrat to beat Donald Trump. Notice the tricky, slick thing he did there. That, oh, I never supported cuts. And then they play a, cl a clip of him saying, we're not going to privatize it or make it a voucher program. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because you oppose privatizing it, just because you oppose making it a voucher program, doesn't mean you opposed cuts. That's a bait and switch, and it is obvious to anybody who knows this stuff inside and out. Because, you know, one of the ways that uh, people have talked about cutting it is um, not not adjusting the, co the cost of living. Uh, so there's one way we do it where we adjust for cost of living with inflation, and then there's another way they want to, there's nothing they want to change it to called chain CPI, which reduces the cost of living adjustment, which is an effective cut. Another way of cutting it is, you know, advocating for freezing the benefits. So in other words, don't increase at all with inflation, chain CPI, or otherwise. Don't increase at all. So there's a number of ways that you could cut it. And what he's saying is, oh, I oppose the privatization of it. Okay, but that doesn't mean you opposed cuts to the program. Now, finally, it looks like Bernie Sanders got the message, oh, that's right, I'm in a primary, and I actually should, you know, 
point out where my opponents are wrong and where I'm correct. So he and his team released this ad almost immediately after Joe Biden released that ad.
So, you know, Bernie, that would have been so gangster if he said in the tweet, Joe, every time you deny cutting Social Security, wanting to cut it, I will release a new ad of you saying exactly that. Because he can do that. There's so many of the videos that every time Biden says he could release a new one. It's incredible. It's amazing. So um, the, the last-ditch effort, and let's be as clear as we could be, the media is against Bernie Sanders, without any doubt at all. And they are doing the bidding of every candidate but Bernie Sanders, okay? Every other viable candidate. In other words, they're not, they don't like Tulsi, they don't like Yang either, but they're far enough back where they're not paying any attention to them at the moment. But they are trying to give the race to any of Mayor P, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar. I mean, they've done a Klobuchar push that was relentless, and she hasn't budged in the polls. She's still irrelevant. Um, but what the media did is stunning. They went back and they said, we found a clip of Bernie Sanders where he talks about how we need to make, quote, adjustments to Social Security. Therefore, Bernie Sanders is guilty of the same thing that he says Joe Biden is guilty of, because Bernie has argued previously that when people talk about making adjustments to Social Security, that's code word for cut it. So Bernie Sanders also wanted to cut it in the 1990s. Therefore, this is a wash. That Guys, I believe, was it a Bloomberg? It was either a Bloomberg reporter or a Daily Beast reporter that made this argument and, and like, wrote an article and everything. Guys, the clip that they're referring to, the, the comments that they're referring to, Bernie makes it crystal clear. When he talks about adjustments to Social Security, he's talking about raising the cap. So, in other words, back when you made the comments, like, your first $100,000 that you make, that's taxed for Social Security. Everything you make above that is not taxed for Social Security. So, when Bernie talks about let's make adjustments, he means let's raise that cap. So, in other words, right now you have, you know, a manager at a construction site who makes $120,000. That dude pays the exact same amount of money in um, social security tax as LeBron James does. As a Wall Street executive who makes $40 million a year, they pay the same amount in social security tax. One makes $120,000, one makes $40 million. So when Bernie talks about adjustments, he's talking about we need to raise taxes on the rich to fund social security more. When Joe Biden talks about adjustments, he's not talking about that. He's talking about cutting the payments, reducing the cost of living adjustment. So he's talking about cutting the payments. Bernie's not talking about cutting the payments at all. He's talking about raising the taxes on the rich to keep funding it. So, and, and, and here's the main point. They know that that's what Bernie was saying. Because any honest reading of what Bernie was saying in the 90s proves that. So what they were doing is they were looking for anything that they could take out of context to try to use against Bernie. And they took this out of context on purpose. On purpose. It's on purpose. There's no doubt about it. It's on purpose. Because you can't walk away from what Bernie said back then and go, oh, I think he supports cutting the payments. Not at all. Not at all. He never, ever, ever advocated that. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He's always advocated for expanding it, making, you know, making Social Security more widespread, bigger payments. So it's, they're, they're being dishonest, guys. They're being dishonest. The new scandal that I just saw this morning, they're trying to um, – 
take a clip of Bernie in the 1970s, by the way, of him saying that, um, you know, working, like working under bad conditions with a, a boss who doesn't respect you, this is something that's kind of akin to back in the day when there was slavery. And they're trying to say, like, oh, my God, I can't believe you said they're doing, like, a whole fake outrage campaign. Guys, he's talking about wage slavery. It literally used to be a mainstream position. And in the Republican Party back in the day, they used to argue that wage slavery, as they called it, is no different from slavery slavery. That really, how different is it? One of them is you're forced to work. The other one is you are renting yourself, renting your labor on the marketplace. So it's a difference between, on the one hand, you're owned, and on the other hand, you are renting yourself. So the difference there is not too much of a difference. Now, you could disagree with that position. That's totally fine. But to do the whole, like, fake outrage, oh, how dare, I can't believe you said that. And they're trying to make it seem like, Old white guy, not woke on race. See, he made these comments. Except Bernie's comments are pretty much as woke as it gets. To say that all wage lab- labor is kind of akin to slave labor, that's like the uber woke position. <laughs> that's like the, no, 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 you think you're outwoken me? I'm way outwoken you. I think wage, I think working for a wage is something that maybe should be abolished. So what is he saying there? What does that mean? It means either you control your own destiny, right, and, and you're your own economic agent, everybody's their own economic agent, or, or what's the only other implication of that? Democratize the workplace. Democratize the workplace so you don't have a boss. So everybody's the boss. So you're in control of your own destiny. Everybody, you get an equal say in the direction the company goes. Now you can't argue on being oppressed, on being exploited, So that's the position he's taking. For them, like, they have to deny very basic schools of political and economic thought in order to try to play gotcha with him. To act like what he said was, oh, my God, that's so offensive. Oh, my God, I'm so offended. You said something that used to be the mainstream position in the Republican Party, and it was a very common position for a very long time. Yeah, it's called wage slavery. Look it up. They didn't even bother to look up the term wage slavery before pressing the outrage button, pressing the offended button. (laughs) <laughs> and say, oh, my God, see, he doesn't, he's, he's demeaning and diminishing what slaves went through by making that comparison to workers. That's a pretty cockamamie way of viewing the situation, and they know it. Again, this is all on purpose. It's fake outrage on purpose. They see that Bernie's doing really well in the polls leading up to the election, so they're panicking. And they're throwing everything they got at him. So far, he's weathered it. Let's hope he keeps weathering it. Let's hope he goes up in the polls. But I want to see him be a little more aggressive, fight back, and punch these losers in the face because they're paper tigers. Okay, next. So Tulsi Gabbard has decided to sue Hillary Clinton for defamation over her uh, Russian asset comments. Let's go to the Hill on this. They say the following. 
Representative Tulsi Gabbard is suing Hillary Clinton for defamation over the former Secretary of State's remarks on a podcast characterizing the Democratic presidential candidate as a Russian asset. Gabbard filed the defamation lawsuit Wednesday in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Um, Gabbard's lawyers allege that Clinton's comments have smeared Gabbard's political and personal reputation. Tulsi Gabbard is a loyal American civil servant who has also dedicated her life to protecting the safety of all Americans, Gabbard's lawyer Brian Dunn said in a statement. Representative Gabbard's presidential campaign continues to gain momentum, but she has seen her political and personal reputation smeared and her candidacy intentionally damaged by Clinton's malicious and demonstrably false remarks. I believe the number is $50 million she's suing for. Um, now, I spoke about this a little bit the other day on, uh, on Rising with Crystal and Sagar on Hill TV. And um, listen, my, I, I do have a mixed opinion on this, and I'll explain why. I'll explain why. This isn't to say that uh, Tulsi's not correct. Of course she's correct. Of course she's not a Russian asset. Of course it's absurd that anybody would accuse her of that. And I think she... I think it really got under her skin, particularly because she's a U.S. congressperson. She's all about, like, service to the country. And this is somebody who was in the military and is still in the National Guard. So it's unconscionable you would accuse somebody like that of being a Russian asset. But this is the new McCarthyism that we talk about all the time. This is how Russiagate broke the brains of many Democrats. And what she's doing here, and it's respectable, is planting a flag and saying, I'm not going to let that stand. I mean, you, can't just say, you can't just say anything you know, and not care about the consequences when this is stuff, they're real lives impacted by this. This is not okay. This is not okay. So I like the fact that somebody finally is standing up to Hillary Clinton and trying to make there be consequences for her actions. I love that aspect of it. However, she's going to lose the case. She's gonna, I'm 100% convinced she's going to lose the case. Okay, maybe that's a little strong. 98% convinced she's going to lose the case. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons, but probably the most important one is Hillary wasn't the one who started this. It was, I believe, an NBC News article that smeared her maliciously, Tulsi Gabbard, as a Russian asset, and then a bunch of morons picked up on it and ran with it, a bunch of people who were drunk on Russiagate. And so if you were to do a lawsuit over this, I would guess you would have to go to the source because you can't, I mean, she could turn around easily and just be like, I'm just going based off that. It's not me. I didn't come up with that. It's, from, it's right there. It's from NBC News or whoever it was. Now, the other thing is in the podcast, she didn't actually mention Tulsi Gabbard by name. That's another thing. Now, we knew who she was referring to. Okay, let's be clear about that. But in a court of law, would you probably have to have like a literal direct reference? Yes. And then the final point is, you would have to prove material damages. So in, in this country, and I think this is the right standard that we have in this country, we are super biased on the side of free speech. We have the First Amendment. Um, you know, you can basically say anything, and there's very few exceptions to free speech, libel, slander, defamation, direct threats of violence. There's very few exceptions, but we lean super heavily on the side of free speech. Now, in order to prove defamation, you have to prove material damages. I don't know if she could do that. And it is notoriously super hard to do that. And, and, and it's even harder than that for a public figure. Guys, listen, I've, I've been, a, you know, some degree of a public figure for a while. People say, oh, it's kind of par for the course. 
It is. It's kind of par for the course. Um, now, that doesn't mean I don't sympathize with Tulsi Gabbard. I think she's 100% right on the substance of this. I think it's outrageous that she was they ever tried to make this argument against her in the first place. Um, but, yeah, I don't think she's going to win this uh, case. And I don't even know if she thinks she's going to win this case. I think she's just doing it to make a point. I think she's just doing it to plant a flag and say, we're not going to let these smears go around out there anymore. But, you know, for the reasons I stated, I don't think it's a good idea. And um, also, listen, again, I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm a free speech absolutist. And um, I mean it. (laughs) So, yeah, she's saying something gross. She's saying something that's a smear. She's saying something that's wrong. And that's still, by and large, allowed in our system, you know. I'm sure I've said things on this show against candidates that may have even been wrong. And should I have been been sued for saying something that's wrong? Like, it just, it strikes me as it's a bad road to go down. We do want to have a total open marketplace of ideas, even insane things that are thrown out there. Um, You're allowed to say it. You're allowed to say it. Now, if it gets to the point of reputational damage, you know, then, yes, you do have a case for defamation, but you have to prove it. And also, guys, she went up in the polls after Hillary came after her. (laughs) That could literally be a counter-argument from Hillary's people in court. Like, okay, I accused her of that, and she went up in the polls. It helped her. That's kind of the opposite of reputational damage, isn't it? I think it is. So now, but, okay, final point is this. If people are mad at me for taking this position, whatever. I don't care. Um, But what she's doing here is actually another reason why I think she should be VP now. Because Bernie has proven to me over and over and over. He's not going to be as aggressive as he needs to be to win. Um, I think one of the main reasons Trump won is because he looked the establishment in the eye and he said, fuck off. And people respected that. And I think with Bernie... He has his own way of doing that. When Bernie crusades relentlessly for working class change and Medicare for all and free college and he's relentless, that's his way of standing up to the establishment. But sometimes he pulls his punches in inconceivable ways, like apologizing for his surrogate, calling Joe Biden corrupt, like not punching back at Hillary when Hillary says crazy things about him. Um, I need some voice in the room that's going to have that instinct of, no, we stand and we fight. And Tulsi Gabbard brings that in a way that no other candidate brings it. The fact that she was willing to go out there and call, you know, call Hillary the queen of corruption and warmongering or whatever she called her. The fact that she called Trump Saudi Arabia's bitch. Like, Bernie wouldn't say that. Bernie wouldn't do that. But those are some of Tulsi Gabbard's finest moments where she went up in the polls the most and where she got the most media recognition. And people were like, yeah, she's kind of right. So I need that instinct in the room with Bernie, the instinct of like, no, 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 no. What? Oh, really? You're not going to fight back on this one? I need that voice in there. And she represents that voice. She would bring that voice. She would bring that fight. She would hit the left and the right. She'd hit the Democrats and the Republicans who come after Bernie and come after her. And, you know, I think Bernie's team might be a little skittish because they think, oh, but the media doesn't like her. Good. Good. That's a good thing. The media are paper tigers. They're, guys, they have 
what was the number? I forget. It's like 19% or 13% of the country have a great deal of trust in the media. Nobody likes these people. The media's approval rating is lower than that of Donald Trump. So if the media comes after you, you should be thanking your lucky stars. Oh, my God, thank you so much. I'm going to get a bump in my approval rating because these idiots who nobody likes are coming after me. Good. Lean into the fact the media doesn't like you. Pick somebody who you know is going to be aggressive, who you know is going to be on your side, who you know is very close to Bernie's ideology. She's the closest one in the race at this point. I mean, that's, I don't even think that's an open question. With Elizabeth Warren selling out 47 different positions, watering down her Medicare for all, but at least, at least a Tulsi's bill is the Australian model when it comes to health care, the single payer plus. Now, I, don't, I'm, I more agree with Bernie's bill, but hers is the closest to his. And I actually think she means it when she says, let's end the wars. So she's closest to him ideologically, and she also has that instinct that he needs moving forward, which is the fighting instinct, and she doesn't know who she pisses off. If she, She'll go after the Democrats. She'll go after the Republicans. When the media comes after her, she'll swat that aside. That's what we need. And unfortunately, Bernie has shown, and his campaign has shown, that oftentimes their instinct is the opposite. De-escalate. De-escalate, de-escalate, de-escalate. Why? Why? Some of the dumbest most loathsome people in the country are coming after you, and you're, I'm, I, I, I want to get out of this situation. Why? Lean into it. That's what she brings. So I know many of you might disagree with my commentary here on uh, the whole, you know, defamation suit and whatnot, but uh, I think that even though I don't agree with her on that, and I think it's a little gimmicky, and I think she might even know she's not going to win, um, I do think that uh, this instinct is further proof as to why she should be VP. And I don't care who yelps and screams and bitches and moans about it. Um, that's who you pick if you want to win. Now let's see if they're serious about winning. Okay. All right, let me do one more and then we'll take a break. So there's a former Hillary Clinton staffer by the name of Karen Finney. I believe her name is Karen Finney. Finney's definitely her last name. Karen, I'm 60% sure it is, but I could be wrong. Anyway, um, she was on CNN. She's a corporate Democrat extraordinaire. And Crystal Ball went on CNN here and took her on about Bernie. So I could show you that the whole interview is great. I think Crystal does a wonderful job. But... I need to show you this portion of the clip because of Karen Finney's reaction. So Crystal's going to state a verifiable fact and then take note of the reaction from Karen Finney because she's apoplectic at something that's being said that's true. So this is quite the moment. Take a look. had one senator support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney, and I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. So, Crystal, what did you think when you heard Hillary Clinton's words? I mean, those comments are, first of all, they're just sort of mean. Like, nobody likes him. I mean, are we in junior high? But second of all, especially with this poll coming out, Look how out of touch this looks. And this is, I think, a, you know, a failure that a lot of D.C. has had, which has made them underestimate Bernie Sanders. Yeah, if you listen to cable news all day, 
if you just hang out in this town, you're going to think nobody likes Bernie Sanders. But again, the polls consistently show he is actually the most popular candidate in the race. New rankings came out. He's the most popular senator in the entire country. So that's part not of true. why. <laughs> so no, that, that literally came that's out last true. week. Morning console polling ranked him as the number one most popular senator in the entire okay. country. <laughs> why do people like him so much? It's precisely because D.C. hates him. People hate D.C. The fact that he didn't come here to make friends, that he came here to stand up for the working class, is precisely why he is so consistently popular across polls. Hot diggity damn. <laughs> that was wild. So the the moment where she's like, <laughs> oh, Crystal, that's not true. <laughs> okay. Okay. Like, what do you think you're going to will out of existence the reality of what she's saying by making, like, strong facial expressions? Is that what you think you're going to do? If I try hard enough, maybe it'll go away. That's not true. Oh, God. Okay. So, of course, crystal ball's correct. You know, take a look. This is – and I love how she even cited the actual, like, polling company. That's cool because there are times I've cited poll numbers, and if somebody was like, hey, man, what's the company that's from? I wouldn't have known. Now, my poll number is would be correct, but I, I still might not know specifics. But she was ready. She was like, yeah, morning console poll. So, morning console poll done January 10th, or this was released January 10th. Bernie Sanders was the most popular senator for the 11th time in a row. So, in other words, Karen Finney here, if that's her name, <laughs> she doesn't even have the excuse of like, well, you know, it's a new poll, and so I didn't get to see it. But you know what? The previous poll didn't have Bernie as the number one, and the one before that didn't have Bernie as the number one. So, you know, you can't blame me for not, for like laughing because I thought it was ridiculous. Well, when the polling company had the same result 11 times in a row, perhaps you should have known. Now, I, to be fair to Karen Finney, I don't think she knew. But to be unfair to Karen Finney, <laughs> I don't mean that. I'm like, just to keep it real here, um, the reason why she's so like, taken aback by that, and she laughs at it, and she thinks it's ridiculous that anybody would think Bernie Sanders is the most popular senator in the country, is because in her social circle, he is the least popular senator in the country. Definitely the least popular Democrat in their circle. You want to know why? Because they're corporate Democrats. They're neoliberals. They're centrists. I mean, this is what they are. This is what they believe in. They're third-way style Democrats. Their whole thing is like, I see no problem at all working with uh, billionaires. I see no problem at all taking money from corporate PACs. Like, they think that's just how the game is played. And that anybody who's against the corruption and against the money in politics, like, they're just, they're just like virtue signaling. They're trying to pretend like they're holier than thou, but they're not holier than thou. Except here's the thing. Bernie Sanders is holier than thou. <laughs> because his voting record is principled and his voting record is correct and it it's, helps working people precisely because he's not playing the corrupt game. He's not part of the D.C. swamp. These people are bathing in the swamp, and that's why she's like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> Bernie popular, not at the cocktail party I was at last night with people that were at Davos playing. <laughs> yes, would you like?
like to give me $200,000 to write a study that benefits your corporation? It's embarrassing. It really is. I mean, I would cut that and make an ad out of it. The, like, the smug, dismissive, condescending laughter, because that's what it was. <laughs> that's not true, Crystal. Bernie, the most popular senator. <laughs> okay, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. That definitely is not the case like 11 times in a row where he's the most popular senator. <laughs> you think it's popular to like give people health care and give people college and raise their wages? Not in my social circle. No. We don't believe in that. We think Hillary Clinton should have been queen. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, listen, I'm having fun here, but bottom line is, man, you got to give props to CNN for having Crystal Ball on. I hope they keep having her on. Um, uh, Fredo Cuomo has had on um, Jank Uger a bunch of times. He's been having on Anna Kasparian recently. At least the voice is in the room now. At least the voice is in the room. Because usually, you know, the, uh, Jake Tapper admitted it the other week. He was like, he had uh, Mehdi Hassan on, and Mehdi Hassan is, you know, a great guy, uh, works for The Intercept, generally a Bernie supporter. And um, uh, Jake Tapper said to him, you know, uh, Mehdi, thanks for being here. You know, we have on lefty representatives, but usually not, you know, like left-left, like Bernie supporting left. And it's like, oh, my God, he, he said it. He just said it. <laughs> so, in other words, they think, like, eh, if we go to Elizabeth Warren supporters, that's, like, left enough. We don't have to go left to that. Don't be crazy admitting to controlling the Overton window, the spectrum of debate that's allowed. And so every now and then when we get, we slip, slip one through, oh man, that's wonderful. So credit to Crystal Ball for pointing that out, blowing up the room, you know, uh, Karen Finney is clueless as to it, and like smugly dismissing and laughing at a fact, a fact that just came out. And um, I mean, listen, this clip should give you a little bit of hope because if our opponents in the primary are this out of touch, I'm saying that that's a good sign for our electability. That doesn't mean you could rest. You know, we got to still keep fighting, try to get them elected, yada, yada. But that's a good sign when they're that out of touch. Okay. All right, now... Uh, let's take a break, and then when we come back, I've still got so many great stories for you, including um, a new poll, and it shows us the arguments that Bernie should be making moving forward, and then also MAGA people and Bernie bros. The comparison is now being made, and it is incredibly stupid. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and much more.
peoples. I am back. I am back to deliver the rest of an unbelievable show for you. It is the most tremendous show you've ever seen. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's talk about a new poll that is probably going to make you smile. But it gives us it gives us um, some direction moving forward in terms of how Bernie needs to run his campaign. So uh, let me go ahead and set this up for you. If I could find the story, that is. There it is right there. I have some important new poll numbers to share with you, and I think that this tells an important story on how the Bernie campaign should move forward. Now, um, we just got a round of positive polls. So what you're about to see, this is from a CNN poll. In this CNN poll is also Bernie leading by three points nationally over Joe Biden. Now, Biden is still up in the average of polls nationally, but this is a brand new CNN poll which shows Bernie leading by three points nationally. Um, There was another poll that just came out today that showed Bernie opening a wide, big lead in New Hampshire. Um, Iowa is still up in the air, but, you know, polls usually show Bernie in first place or second place. I think Biden has still has a little – no, 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 Biden has slipped in – what am I saying? Biden has slipped massively in, uh, in Iowa. But still, it's up in the air in terms of is it Bernie's. Now, in order for Bernie to win this election, he needs to come out the gate strong because Super Tuesday, Biden has a giant advantage in a lot of these states, man. I mean, that's what the polls show right now. He's still leading by wide margins in many of the Super Tuesday states. So – Bernie has to win, in my opinion, I think Bernie needs to win three of the first four states in order to really um, be in a comfortable position. Um, Three of four I'll take, four of four would be awesome, Um, but he does need to come out the gate strong because these first states are sort of demographically and otherwise, Bernie, these are states that Bernie should be strong in. And so if he doesn't perform well in the early states, then it's time to hit the panic button. Because, again, Super Tuesday, Biden has giant leads in many of the states. Now, don't rest on any of this stuff, man. you got to fight. you got to work. If you're texting for him, text for him. If you're making phone calls for him, make phone calls for him. If you're standing on a freaking soapbox on a street corner screaming stuff, go stand on your soapbox on the street corner and scream stuff. Whatever you got to do, whatever you got to do to try to get this dude elected, pedal to the metal. I always go back to, you know, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite stories is about Tiger Woods and how he always said, if I'm leading by one, I want to be leading by three. If I'm leading by three, I want to be leading by five. If I'm leading by five, I want to be leading by 10. If I'm leading by 10, I want to be leading by 20. If I'm leading by 20, I want to be leading by 30. In other words, 
I'm, I don't just want to beat you. I want to pummel you into the ground. I want to obliterate you. That's the mindset that we have to have on this campaign it, to win. You have to have the And the other thing is, shout out to everybody on NBA on TNT, run through the tape. You got to run through the tape, man. You got to run through the tape. You get all systems go pedal to the middle the entire time. It's not over till it's over. All right. But anyway, I digress. I'm kind of off in the weeds here a little bit. Um, here is the new CNN poll, which gives us some direction in terms of strategy moving forward. So they got into some interesting specifics here. Okay. Um, let's go through this. Just for for now, just focus on uh, Bernie and Biden, because as of right now, they're really the only two who are in the race. So ignore everybody below. Ignore Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Bloomberg, so on and so forth. Okay. Um, the first thing has the best chance to beat Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential election. Bernie Sanders, 24%. Joe Biden, 45%. That's interesting. Next, agrees with you on the issues that matter most to you. Bernie, 30%. Biden, 20%. Has the best chance of uniting the country. Bernie, 22%. Biden, 39%. Has the best chance of uniting the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders, 16%. Joe Biden, 41%. Okay. This is all so important, guys. This is so important because here's the deal. We won on the thing that we have been fighting on. What does that mean? That means the Bernie campaign, me, you, everybody's been out here trying to make the argument since day one. Listen, it's not even close. Bernie Sanders is the person who agrees with you on the issues. Vote for him. You got to, he agrees with you on the issues. Where's the question? Where's the question? Well, guess what? We won on that front. He's beating Biden by 10 points on that front. Wave the flag. He won that one. Where is Bernie struggling? In all the other categories they just laid out there. So, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's also leading in best understands the problems you face, which, again, kind of works hand-in-hand hand with agrees with you on the issues. Those are very similar things. It's like saying, well, yeah, he sees the world through my eyes. He understands the problems because he's always talking about those same problems that I experience. So that's where – so people get it about Bernie. They get it. Like, okay, he's the dude who actually agrees with me. He's the dude who actually can see the world through my eyes. He's the guy who would, like, fix my problems. Where he struggles – um, has the best chance to beat Donald Trump. That's what this poll shows. 24% Bernie, 45% Biden. Guys, we got to start making the electability argument. We got to start making the electability argument because that's a giant lead for Joe Biden. And listen, if Bernie loses this race, if Bernie loses this race, I think it'll be two reasons. One, he wasn't aggressive enough against the establishment. That's what I think would be, is a major flaw in his campaign. And the other thing is, people will have thought, even though I prefer Bernie, I got to go with the more electable choice because we have to beat Donald Trump. And the more electable choice is Joe Biden. So if he loses, that is why he loses right there. So you got to go out there and start making the argument that Bernie Sanders is more electable than Joe Biden. And there's a number of ways to do it, man. There's a number of ways to do it, but 
fact of the matter is, Joe Biden, apart from barely being coherent anymore, he's not as strong as Bernie in the exact places where you need to be strong in order to win the election. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Joe Biden supported a lot of these outsourcing deals, NAFTA, and Bernie Sanders fought these outsourcing deals. Bernie Sanders does phenomenally well in the Rust Belt. Now, you could critique our system till the cows come home, and I would agree with you, but the way our system works, an area that absolutely has to be won for somebody to become president is the Rust Belt. It's the Rust Belt. So Bernie Sanders does well in the exact area in the country where we need a Democrat to do well. The states that, the states that decide the election are the states where Bernie Sanders is the strongest. That is the definition of electable. You know what else? Who chips away more at Trump voters? Who gets more independence? Bernie and Bernie. Bernie and Bernie. He gets those disaffected Republicans. He gets those Trump voters on his side, those former Trump voters, two times Obama voters who flipped to Trump. He gets them on his side. Again, definition of electable. Brings new people into the political process. Definition of electable. So that, those are the arguments we have to be making now. Because they get it on, the, they actually get it on the policy. Like, yeah, oh yeah, Bernie, 100%. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, sees the world the way I see it, the, it would help my life and fix my problems. They get it. But they're still like, I don't know. What do you mean? Why are you like, I don't know? Because they think we got to beat Trump, and I think Biden is the best suited to beat Trump. Why do you think that? Why do you think? I'll tell you why you think that. Because of the media. Because the media, they never made a case, by the way. They don't have to. If you repeat something enough, people go, I don't know, I guess that's true. And that's what they did. Joe Biden's the most electable. 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 Why? Based on what? Do you know he ran for president multiple times before, and every single time he got his clock cleaned? He got, he's got nothing to show for it. Dickie McGee's axe. That's how well he did in the previous election that he ran in. So you're talking, this guy's the most electable? Based on what? Based on what? Based on nothing. Based on... The media has been repeating it over and over, so people have started to believe it, even though it's not true. Guys, that's the argument we have to make. Now, of course, the other things. Has the best chance of uniting the country? I mean, there's an argument to be made that the very fact that Bernie holds the base and gets crossover Trump voters, that unites the country more. It unites the country more when you have a president who's willing to represent your interests and push for the policies you want. That represents the country more. And the policies Bernie's pushing for, even many Republicans like him. There was one poll that 51% of Republicans wanted Medicare for all. So who's going to unite the country? Bernie's going to unite the country. Guys, he's most similar to FDR, who was so damn popular, he got elected four times and died in office, and the Republicans said, oh my God, we need to do term limits because we'll never win again if all the Democrats who run are like FDR. That's how much Bernie can unite the country. And uniting the Democratic Party, that's even easier. Because people say, oh, Biden can unite the Democratic Party. Really? Nobody on the left who I talk to and I know, and I'm in these left-wing circles, nobody's excited about Biden. Nobody wants Biden to be the nominee in the circles I run in. So he's going to get all these people who despise him based on his record? All of a sudden, they're going to love him? No, it's not going to happen. Bernie unites the Democratic Party, particularly because he represents the interests of the voter. Now, don't get me wrong. The establishment goons, yeah, 
We're not going to unite with them. But they've been trying to destroy the party from the beginning. They've been trying to keep the Democratic Party a corporate neoliberal party, a sellout party, a corrupt party. There's no unifying with them. We don't need to unify with them. They're a paper tiger. There's like 13 of those people in Washington, D.C. and New York. That's it. The actual voters agree with Bernie, and that's how we're going to unite the Democratic Party. So we need to make these arguments now because people get it about many of the things Bernie has been talking about. But they're hesitant on has the best chance to beat Trump. They're not convinced of that. And my guess is they've never heard the argument as to why, of course, Bernie's the best suited to beat Trump. And we need to make the argument he'll unite the country and unite the Democratic Party because that's what people are hesitant on. That's what they're hesitant on. So, listen, he needs to do well in the first states. And also, we need to have massive turnout. That's how Bernie wins. Bernie wins with giant voter turnout. Because we can make all these polls irrelevant. You do know that, right? We can make all the polls irrelevant. If turnout is like double what the pollsters were predicting, then we win in a landslide. So let's make that happen, man. Let's make that happen. Bring all those new voters into the process, all the young voters into the process, all the people who were turned off to politics and said, I'm never going to vote again, and then they see this guy who's really going to represent them. This is how we win, and we need to keep fighting. And there's good news and bad news in this poll, but at least we have direction on how to move forward. Okay, next. There's a guy by the name of Kurt Bardella, and uh, he used to work for Breitbart, and he went on MSNBC to cry about evil Bernie bros and how they're so similar to MAGA people. Twitter Bernie bros uh, and say that they actually have a lot in common with President Trump's uh, army of online uh, supporters, the MAGA, the MAGA group there. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about, first of all, explain to us who the Bernie bros are uh, and why are you making this comparison? Well, the Bernie bros first came along in the 2016 campaign, and they seem to be the uh, vocal, kind of almost mob-like, die-hard, cult-like following of Bernie Sanders. Now, I should be clear, Bernie Sanders has, has throughout the campaign in 2016, uh, decried some of the tactics they used on social media, the bullying and, and the targeting primarily of people of color, women, uh, who disagree with, with Senator Sanders' platform. But one of the things that I've experienced firsthand is when, when I've come on this very program and have raised valid concerns about Senator Sanders and, and his viability, immediately the Twitter sphere, the Bernie bros, go hardcore attack mode. And, and the traits and the words and the rhetoric that they use, the only thing I've ever seen close to that is what MAGA people do, what the Trump voters do. And I think that is a very dangerous and disturbing uh, trend to see, uh, particularly when Democrats 
Democrats are trying to show that there is a better way than what we've seen from Trump, better than the divisiveness and the use of fear and hatred and extremism to try to scare people into a particular ideology. We have to be a Democratic Party that's okay with honest disagreements, that's okay with raising valid concerns and valid questions. I would like to think that Senator Sanders himself wants that for the Democratic Party, but some of his most ardent and hardcore supporters are taking some very, I think, dangerous rhetorical measures, and I think that Senator Sanders in the long run is going to need to be a little bit more vocal about calling that out and condemning that. Yeah, no, he doesn't, and uh, you guys are absurd. So <laughs> let's dive into this. First of all, guys, the game is rigged, and here's what I mean by that. People get to say anything they want about Bernie Sanders and his supporters. They get to be as vituperative as they want. They get to be as negative as they want. They get to say, throw any smear against the wall, strawman his policy positions. It doesn't matter. They can say anything they want. And if you respond, no, 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 you're not allowed to respond. If you say anything in response, ah, Bernie, bro. Bernie bro, oh my god, with this broness. Oh, you're so like MAGA people. Oh, Bernie bro. So you see how the game is rigged? The game is rigged because they can say anything. And if you respond to what they say, then, you know, you're out of bounds. By definition, you're immediately out of bounds for responding to it. Well then, you know, I submit to these people. What should Bernie supporters say when his record is being mischaracterized, he's being strawmanned, there's unfair characterizations of him. What should they do? What should they do? Because they, listen, these are people who are in the media game, and as soon as they get people angry at them in their menchies, they lose it and they think it's the most important issue in the world. <laughs> they really do. They think like, oh my God, people are yelling at me in my mentions. This is like, you know, a national crisis. How many articles have been written about Bernie bros since, the, you know, he first started running? And like, how many establishment journalists think this is a giant issue. It's like, no, it's not a giant issue. You say dumb things, and then people respond to it, and then you're like, oh, how dare they? This is, a, this is an attack on me. This is an attack on my profession, and somebody needs to do something about this. You're just way too online, dog. <laughs> you're just way too online. Okay, so the other point is, uh, first of all, I don't think that, you know, the Bernie bros, and that is a pejorative, by the way, and it erases the people of color and the women who support Bernie, but... Um, I don't think that the Bernie supporters are like Trump supporters, but let's say for a second that they are. Okay, is, do you realize that you're saying Bernie will probably win? <laughs> like, this, this doesn't occur to people. <laughs> oh my God, the online Bernie supporters are so much like the online Trump supporters. And Donald Trump rode a wave of strong support online and otherwise Right into the White House. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Like, dude, people don't stop and think about shit. Like, I think Bernie supporters are a lot like Trump supporters. So that would mean he's probably going to win. <laughs> Trump had the strong, loud support online. If Bernie's got the same thing, okay, TikTok. President Sanders, baby. Like, Oh, my God. It's so funny. Oh, it's so funny. All this stuff is so funny. So, yeah, like, even if we accept their premise, that could kind of be a good thing because it means Bernie's going to win. Um, then there's just a flat-out lie. They're, they're bullying and targeting people of color and women. Not a single group of Bernie supporters has ever, in the history of Bernie supporters' existence, targeted women and people of color. That's never happened. You know what, you know what uh, Bernie supporters do? 
if they see somebody saying something dumb, saying something untrue, smearing their guy, lying, whatever it might be, they'll go after them. Do, do you think there's, they stop to do like a skin color check? That there's like a committee of Bernie voters who are like, you know, we could go after this gentleman over here, but he's a white man and he's 53 years old. Hold our fire, because usually, you know, we're kinder to the white men. But over here, we got a person of color, young woman. All systems go, unleash the hounds. I mean, like, it's, it's comical. It's comical is what it is. But see, again, I want to say it again. When they have nothing on Bernie, they have to make these fake scandals. And one of the, the wells that they keep going to is, and this is the implication, the implication is he's an old white guy, therefore he has to have some sort of retrograde social beliefs. And he has to be unwoke to a point where we could use it against him. And so that's why they have all these scandals that they make. Oh, my God. Bernie said a woman can't win. There's videos of him in 1987, before I was born, bro, saying, I think a woman can win. And I think uh, things are changing, but not fast enough. That guy behind, the, behind closed doors is like, you know, you know, toots, I don't think these women got to cut out. I don't think they're cut out for the big leagues. That's not happening. Come on, man. It's just, it's so over the top and it's so silly. Um, and then, guys. What these fake journalists fear is accountability. That's the thing. It's like the thing that's beautiful about Twitter is that it has democratized, democratized the public square. So everybody has a voice now. Now, don't get me. Are there downsides? That's sure. Are there instances of like genuine harassment and creepy stuff? Absolutely. I mean, that's, it's human nature that some people... You get a, a big enough group of people, some people are going to be bad apples. That happens, of course. But, listen, the overwhelming majority of the time, and with most people, you're just, now everybody has a voice and they can respond to what you're doing. And back in the day, in the 1990s, if there's a smear article written about a good uh, you know, candidate, there's no response to that. People just are force-fed the propaganda, and they just have to deal with it. And the media can lie and misstate and do whatever, and you just got to take it. And there's no avenue to respond. Well, now there is an avenue to respond. And you got people out there who 500,000 medical bankruptcies every single year, 7 million people losing their health insurance, wages still stagnant. The list goes on and on. And now all these people have a voice. And when you go after the candidate who's trying to fix those problems, they're going to be mad at you. And they're going to say, no, 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 you're not stating that correctly. What you're saying here is wrong. And and these guys look at it, and they're, they're shocked, and they're offended that everybody has a voice now. And they're, they used to be able to say whatever they wanted with no accountability, and now they say stuff, and there's accountability, and they, it feels like oppression to them. It feels like oppression to them when people respond to their nonsense. Now, just for the record, this doesn't mean that every time there's a Twitter mob, they are right by definition. No, of course not. But it just so happens that most of the criticisms from mainstream media against Bernie Sanders are preposterous. And so when his supporters are like, hey, man, that's not true, that's called correcting the record. That's called accountability. That's called you're not just going to get away with spewing your propaganda. And then the final point is, here we go again. Listen, tone analysis. This is the tone analysis point that the New York Times did. It's, it was stupid then, it's stupid now, and it's always going to be stupid. So the tone analysis is, as the New York Times said, we don't need to replace one over-promising bomb thrower with another.
In other words, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are basically the same because they overpromise and they're bomb throwers. It's the horseshoe theory. The far right and the far left are basically the same. Hoo, hoo, hoo. Except the exact opposite is true. I don't care what tone you use as you're getting me health care. I care that you're getting me health care. I don't care what tone you use as you end the wars. I care that you end the wars. Now, Donald Trump, 7 million people lost health care under his administration. He's increasing our number of wars. Bernie Sanders wants to give everybody health care and end the wars. The fact that they both yell at their rallies is irrelevant. And it's, it's the analysis of a rube. I mean, that is a, a, a dimwit analysis right there. It's, I, I said it, it in the New York Times example. That's the political analysis of a dog. And what do I mean by that? Dogs respond to what? Tone. It's not what you say. It's how you say it that they respond to. And so this is the same thing. It's, oh, my God, you know, uh, Bernie and Trump, they're so similar. And the Trump supporters and the Bernie supporters are also similar because they're both like act like Twitter mobs. Except it doesn't matter to these people that one group of people is talking about, you know, building a wall and not allowing Muslims into the country. And the other group of people is talking about, hey, you know, my dad died because he didn't have health care. Everybody should have health care and a living wage. They go, it's the same because they're both angry. Oh, man. And uh, as my friend Jimmy Dore says, you wonder why people get their news from YouTube. Now, guys, I'm not, like, I don't think of myself as a journalist, as a reporter. I'm not. I'm just a dude. But, like, just saying basic things <laughs> all of a sudden makes me, like, like people want to watch the show. Why? Because I'm not BSing them. <laughs> That's the only reason. Like, the, the one thing this show has is I am not bullshitting you. I'm telling you exactly what I think. And that, people are like... Oh, my God, revolutionary. <laughs> is it? Is it revolutionary? Apparently it is in this media environment because this is what they're doing on mainstream media. <laughs> people were mean in my mentions. <laughs> whoop de doo People are dying because they don't have health care. I think that's more important. All right, next. President Trump slips some climate change denialism and some anti-socialism talk into his speech at Davos. Is it Davos or Davos or I don't know. I actually don't care, so don't even bother answering that. It's like Steyer Stayer. It's gonna. This is just what it is. <laughs> Every time I talk about Steyer Stayer, it's Steyer Stayer Steyer Steyer. But with uh, Davos Davos, we're gonna do the same thing. So anyway, uh, he was given a speech at Davos Davos, and um, or the World Economic Forum, whatever you want to call it. And uh, most, for the beginning part of it, it was mostly like he was doing the whole fake, I'm going to be like professional type stuff where he's reading from his, uh, you know, his teleprompter and he's more tame than Trump usually is. And then even though these comments are on the teleprompter as well, look at how he, you know, veers into a ditch. This is not a time for pessimism. This is a time for optimism. Fear and doubt is not 
a good thought process because this is a time for tremendous hope and joy and optimism and action. But to embrace the possibilities of tomorrow, we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. They are the heirs of yesterday's foolish fortune tellers, and I have them, and you have them, and we all have them. And they want to see us do badly, but we don't let that happen. They predicted an overpopulation crisis in the 1960s, mass starvation in the 70s, and an end of oil in the 1990s. These alarmists always demand the same thing, absolute power to dominate, transform, and control every aspect of our lives. We will never let radical socialists destroy our economy, wreck our country, or eradicate our liberty. America will always be the proud, strong, and unyielding bastion of freedom. In America, we understand what the pessimists refuse to see, that a growing and vibrant market economy focused on the future lifts the human spirit and excites creativity strong enough to overcome any challenge, any challenge by far. That's amazing, man. Because Trump, when he ran, there were times where he, you know, deviated from standard uh, free market fundamentalism and spoke about, you know, our trade deals are bad, and he was sympathetic towards protectionism and all this stuff. And, um, like, what you just heard right there, that speech could have been delivered by George W. Bush, by Mitt Romney. I mean, that is full-on, drink-the-Kool-Aid, unfettered, free market, laissez-faire capitalism, fundamentalism. Like, that's what that is. Uh, talking about how, you know, oh, a free market is going to be the thing that gets us out of this because of the creativity. He was re- talking about climate change earlier on. He was alluding to climate change. And like, oh, yeah, the creativity, the free market will get us a- out of these problems. And it's like, have you ever heard of externalities? Externalities, for those of you who don't know, it's basically an unintended consequence of a free marketplace. And, you know, some classic example, it's like pollution, for example. That's an unintended consequence of a free marketplace. So in other words, the goal is not let's create pollution, but in the process of having a free marketplace, pollution happens. And so that's why you need regulation to deal with externalities. So, you know, you have to have rules and you have to have things like, what was the classic example? I think it was a GE plant in New York on the Hudson River, and they were just dumping toxic chemicals into the Hudson River. And they would have kept doing it until the government said, hey, man, you can't do that. So we're going to go ahead and make you do the right thing by regulating you. Classic example of an externality. And what Trump is doing here is denying even the existence of externalities at all and saying, like, no, no, the creativity of the free marketplace will basically, like, figure it out. What? So there's no problems that the free market doesn't address? I mean, that's wild. I also love how he talks about freedom there. And, like, the first thing that popped in my mind when he's talking about that is a story from, like, two or three weeks ago. He just banned um, flavored vapes for everybody. And he, he had, like, a roundtable discussion where he had people from the industry and scientists and whatnot there, and he was asking questions and everything. It was actually an interesting meeting. But he ended up going with, even though he voiced in the meeting, like, yeah, but if we ban the flavors, won't counterfeit flavors come in and won't they maybe not be regulated and people will get, you know, smoke bad stuff? So he was bringing that up, but he decided, well, we're going to ban the flavored vapes. 
So you don't just do me a favor. I know it seems trivial, like oh, it's just you know flavored vapes or whatever, right? But don't talk about we believe in freedom. Yeah. If you're not going to actually implement ideas that are based on that principle, and this is obvious. Like, don't talk about if if you're not going to legalize, if you're not going to change marijuana from a Schedule One drug and legalize it, don't talk about freedom. Now, of course, he means economic freedom. But what he means by economic freedom is capitalism, and capitalism is, it could be argued, is the opposite of economic freedom. Why? Because under a capitalist system, you have a rigid hierarchy. You have an owner, you have you know, some, a manager, a boss, and then you have workers underneath. So how much freedom do you really have if you have to do whatever your boss says? You have to do whatever the owner of the company says. So in other words, under capitalism, all these businesses are actually little tyrannies. They're little, little dictatorships with a rigid hierarchy. Is that freedom? What Trump means is, oh, it's freedom for the owner of the business. So it's freedom for the, work, for the owner class, not for the worker class, but they don't count. All that matters, all under a free, free market economic system, you know, we have all this creativity and whatnot. You have little fiefdoms. You have little, little tyrannies where the workers don't really get a say in the direction of the company. So one could argue that's not freedom at all. That true economic freedom is democratizing the workplace. That's what, I mean, that could definitely be argued. So it's really uh, amazing. Now, the other thing is, of course, he had to take a pot shot at socialists. And I, lo I love how, guys, they will never engage honestly on this topic because they can't. But he, he talks about how the socialists want absolute power to control our lives. Oh, do they? They want absolute power to control our lives. Or, like I was just alluding to, they want, just like we have political democracy, they want democracy in the workplace. Is that absolute power to control your lives? Let me tell you something. Bernie Sanders, who's a social democrat, describes himself as a democratic socialist, who Trump would call a socialist. This is a guy who wants way more social freedoms for you. This is a guy who would legalize marijuana. He's running on legalizing marijuana. So don't give me this, like, oh, they want to... They want to control your lives. They want to get in there and control your lives. You're the dude who just banned the flavored vapes. You're the dude who just, who still has marijuana illegal under your administration. Spare me, man. Spare me. And are you really free if you could die from a lack of health care? Are you really that free? You can go bankrupt from paying medical bills? Is that free? Okay, so, and then the final things I'll bring up here. Um... He says, don't listen to the pessimists. Don't listen to the people who are, you know, pushing fear and doubt. Um, the prophets of doom and apocalypse. And in the past, they spoke about overpopulation and starvation, and now they're alarmists. So what he's doing there is he's saying all the people who are warning about climate change, and they're, they're just prophets of doom and apocalypse, and they're just as wrong as the people in the past who spoke about, you know, overpopulation or whatever, and um, don't listen to them. Guys, it is amazing to me, amazing to me, that we have the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States, giving this speech at the World Economic Forum, and in one fell swoop, dismissing the entire scientific community. Because that's what that is. Oh, the prophets of doom and apocalypse. Oh, you mean the people who fucking studied this issue for decades and have specific numbers on it and have laid it out in excruciating detail and every single study comes back and says, you know what, the climate is worse than the worst case scenario that we previously predicted? Those people? 
those people. Those are the, quote, prophets of doom and apocalypse. They, they're pessimists, and, and there's fear and doubt, and that's not good. What do you do when pessimism is true? What do you do when that's accurate? Pessimism is wrong by definition. Why? Why is that wrong? You'd have to make a case to show that. Sometimes pessimism is totally merited. In the case of climate change, are you kidding me? You should be pessimistic beyond pessimistic. You should take your pessimism and inject it with some steroids and human growth hormone and watch it grow and say, you know what, that's how pessimistic I am. And add another pessimistic on top of the pessimistic that we already injected with steroids. Are you kidding me? Talking about how pessimism, fear, and doubt, that's not good. Sometimes it's totally merited. This is one of those instances. This is one of those instances. So this is, I mean, it's just so sad. Guys, we don't even have a president. If we had a president who acknowledged these problems and tried to fix them but didn't go far enough, that's one thing. We don't have that right now. We have a president who doesn't even acknowledge basic scientific reality, doesn't acknowledge climate change, so obviously he's not going to try to do anything to fight it at all. He pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, and he doesn't even acknowledge, you know, regulation and how that's a a basic beneficial thing for the economy. So this guy, and here's the main point. Don't get it twisted. Donald Trump is a standard Republican president. And he's, for the longest time, he's tried to do the whole, like, you know, me, bro, I'm anti-establishment, all right? Why? Because you say some things in your rallies? I care about what you do, not what you say, okay? And unfortunately, everything he's saying here is backed up by what he does. Pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, deregulating like crazy, deregulating Wall Street, destroying the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, deregulating businesses. He's doing it with the EPA and the FDA, your food, your medicine. This is stuff he's deregulating. We just covered the story the other day. Pork is now mystery meat. It could have toenails and eyeballs and feces in it. Why? Because they deregulated and said, we don't need to have this many meat inspectors. Really? So back to Upton Sinclair in the jungle days. That's what we're going to do? Terrible, man. Absolutely terrible. Absolutely grotesque. And um, we got to get him out. Okay, next. President Trump was asked if he'll tackle the deficit in his second term by a CNBC host here. And um, he was asked, like, specifically how he'll do that. So in other words, he was presented with two options. Are you going to raise taxes? Are you going to cut spending? That's the question. Hey, man, are you going to address the deficit in your second term? And if so, are you going to do it by raising taxes or are you going to do it by cutting spending? Watch this back and forth. Pay attention to his answer because it's basically the dumbest possible answer you could have given. Than we did when the taxes were high. 
nobody can even believe it, but we take in more revenue with the big tax cut. I mean, you were paying really 41% that we've run it down to 21, and it's sort of lower so than that. That will be a priority. Oh, absolutely. Okay. That is not true. If what he was saying is true, we would be reducing the deficit. Here's what really happened. Federal deficit increases 26% to $984 billion for fiscal year 2019, highest in seven years. So he's asked, hey, man, are you going to address the deficit? Because it's a big, you know, right-wing talking point, especially on CNBC, because they're obsessed with, you know, this is a, the corporatist channel through and through. How are you going to address it? Are you going to address it by raising taxes? Or are you going to address it by cutting spending? Now, this is what's called a softball down the center of the plate for any other Republican. You go, oh, okay, hit that, go. And they can easily knock it out of the park. You want to know why? Because the Republican ideology 101 is, I'm going to cut spending. That's, that's what they say. Now, the one, like, cutting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security is what they mean, but they wouldn't say that because they know that that's not popular. So they just say, oh, we're going to cut spending. We're going to reform entitlements. That means cutting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. That's what that means. Um, but Trump is too dumb to even give that answer of, I'm going to cut spending, obviously. I'm not going to raise taxes. I'm a Republican. He says, oh, I'm going to cut taxes. You're going to cut taxes. You're asked a question about the deficit and how you're going to address it. And your response is, I'm going to cut taxes. By cutting taxes, you are further cutting revenue coming into the government, which means your deficit, which is already exploding, is going to explode even more. And look at how they just, the CNBC has let it slide right by. Why? Because they have, they literally believe in, and this isn't me speaking now, this is George H.W. Bush who said this back in the day. They believe in voodoo economics. Why? Because they think, oh, really, magically you're going to cut taxes and somehow that's going to increase revenue to the government and somehow that's going to make your deficit a surplus? At face value, that makes no sense. Because their argument is, you can thank Art Laffer for this, who's a moron. He was like, oh, if you cut taxes, specifically for the rich and the corporations, what happens is you unleash the beast of the free market economy, and there is so much economic growth that even paying a lower rate means the government is getting more revenue. Now, they have tried this since the 1980s. It has never worked. Ronald Reagan had a record debt and deficit because this is nonsense. George H.W. Bush, same thing. Donald Trump, same thing. If their theory was correct, there would already be a massive reduction in the deficit, but it's increasing every year. So you know what happens when you actually cut taxes? You cut revenue into the government. You know what happens when you cut revenue into the government? You increase the deficit. So, but what I'm amazed by is there is no amount of reality that can penetrate that bubble and what they're saying and how brainwashed they are. There's no amount of reality. It doesn't matter. They could... They will cut taxes for the rich and corporations until the cow come, cows come home. The deficit will continue to explode, and they'll keep saying, we got to address this deficit. Let's cut taxes more. Now, in the case of Trump, I think it's because he's dumb and he doesn't get it. But in the case of other Republicans, it's just a ruse. It's just a ruse. They know that it doesn't work, but they don't care because the main goal for them is, let's have my rich buddies run out the back door with all the money. 
So I'm going to cut their taxes, and I believe in that. It's a principle of mine. I want to give the rich back as much money as I can possibly give them back. So, but with Trump, I actually think he's too dumb to get it, that he thinks, like, it's tremendous, it's unbelievable. When I cut taxes more, the deficit will be impacted wonderfully, and we're already getting, we're already getting way more money coming into the government. It's really amazing. You, nobody ever could have seen this coming. I'm not kidding. We, you know, I could have gone back and, and got the specific clips, but they were saying that you will immediately start seeing a reduction in the deficit once they pass their 2017 tax law. And the opposite happened. The deficit skyrocketed. Now, by the way, I'm not, I'm not a deficit fear monger or anything. I'm not, you know, that's not, oh my God, we need to balance it ASAP. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is they are empirically wrong in every single prediction that they make. And even when he's asked the simplest question where he, he could have just said there, oh, oh, I'm going to cut spending, obviously. He's like, um, I'm going to cut taxes more. So you're going to do the thing that exacerbates the problem when you're asked about how to fix the problem. Brilliant. All right, next. President Trump was asked, oh, I'm sorry, already did that shit. There, Tommy Lorenzo, Tomato Lorenzo. Tomato, Tomato Lorenzo, um, she is attacking socialism on her show here. Uh, It looks like some sort of special episode that she's doing. Like, you know, she acts like this is like investigative reporting. I spoke to a bunch of right-wing hacks who formerly lived in a place that I think is bad. And uh, now we're going to use that to bash entire uh, ideological schools of thought that I know nothing about. Um, I love this because of how much it lacks any subtlety or nuance. It's just like heavy-handed propaganda. So take a look at this. Also, pay specific attention to like the music in the background (laughs) and the arguments they make and how over the top this is. What I'm really glad that you're doing is telling the stories and educating people on what socialism, communism, what those things actually are. Because I tell you, I talk to a lot of young people just like you do, and they don't know what socialism is. I see an opportunity to show them what it really is. I watched Venezuela collapse under socialism. That economic system is a catastrophic failure. It will destroy the United States if implemented. They want big government to control you. They want to take away your freedom. If we allow socialism to take over this country, we're all emotion and storytelling of the people who have lived through socialism and the people who have their true American dream, that's how we're going to reach our generation. Everything about that, amazing. Everything about that. Even, the, like, the last screen of her, like, putting her finger up, like, please, I'm about to drop some knowledge on all of you. <laughs> Come on, man, it's so stupid. Okay, so there's a couple things I just, it's just chef's kiss, mwah, wonderful. I like when she says, you know, I talk to these people, they they don't even know what socialism is. And it's like, you didn't even bother to define it in your freaking promo clip. 
like Tommy Lauren is going to keep it real with you about socialism, and I can guarantee you they never even define it. Or if they do define it, it's their made-up version. It's not like actual socialism. She's not going to. She's not going to treat her opponents and detractors honestly, accurately characterize their beliefs, and then disagree with it. Because that would require too much intellectual firepower. What she's going to do is just tell her opponents and detractors, here's what you believe. Here's what I'm going to tell you you believe, and now I'm going to beat that straw man to death. Well, congratulations. How bold, how brave, how courageous, how deep. <laughs> it's so stupid. Um, and then, you know, she goes on to further prove that I'm correct in that characterization by saying, um, by having people there like, Venezuela, now, what are the chances? First of all, all the factors are relevant when talking about Venezuela. But what are the chances she actually brings up all the factors? Will she bring up, for example, the catastrophic U.S. sanctions against that country? Or will she just totally sidestep it and ignore it and act like that has no impact on the economy when it, in fact, has a gigantic impact on the economy? I can, with 100% certainty, I can tell you she will not bring up the U.S. sanctions against Venezuela and how that's impacted industries over there. There's no way she'll bring it up, even though it is definitely relevant to the picture. Now, am I saying that, oh, you can only blame the sanctions for what's happening over there? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what she is going to say is the equal and opposite untrue thing, which is that, oh, it has nothing to do with U.S. sanctions. She's not going to mention it. Oh, it's all, yeah, it's Maduro and socialism and all that stuff. The operative problem in all of these countries that she is characterizing as they're just socialists is the authoritarianism. That's the problem. The problem is authoritarianism, whether it's left-wing authoritarianism or right-wing authoritarianism. That's the issue when the government gets involved way too much in your social life and is heavy-handed and unintelligent with micromanaging the economy. Like, that's the problem. The authoritarianism is the operative thing that's terrible. But she, what she wants to do is conflate in people's minds Socialism equals authoritarianism, full stop. That's what she's trying to do there. Um, and she actually, you know, has one of her people here say, like, uh, big government is going to control you. This is what we mean by socialism. How many times do we have to respond to this point directly? And then they ignore it and act like we never responded to it. When we say, hey, man, listen, the most analogous thing to what, like, Bernie is calling for, she would call Bernie a socialist. He says he's a democratic socialist. In reality, he's a social democrat. He's just talking about Sweden. <laughs> he's just talking about Norway. The idea that that's like some sort of hellhole is, oh, my God. People are trying to escape from the devastating situation that is Norway. It's, it's, it's so oppressive to have health care and education and really good wages and paid time off. It's like, can you please have an honest conversation about this? But she can't, because when the left, when social democrats, when many people who describe themselves as socialists explain what they're in favor of, it's like the positions are overwhelmingly popular in the United States. They are empirically workable and very successful in Scandinavia. And they're, you know, eminently doable here and perfectly reasonable. So it's just embarrassing. And then also, you know, we don't – there's a rich tradition in the U.S. of this stuff, whether it's Eugene Debs, whether it's FDR and the New Deal, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr., the union movement. 
Like, all these things have massive successes, but she doesn't, like, these left-wing movements, she, she just discounts all of the things that left movements have done that have worked and have been successful, and she strawmans socialism and leftism by just saying, Venezuela. <laughs> and that's never going to work. Like, you know, Sager from Hill TV talks about this all the time. He's a right-wing populist, and he's like, he screams at the right and says, you guys don't get it. You can't just, like, that's not a debate. That's not a point. That's not an argument. You don't just get to scream Venezuela when we're in the midst of these detailed policy debates and discussions and think you won the debates. Big bad Venezuela. End of conversation. Moving on. No. So, but really? But I have somebody here who was in Venezuela. So now I win. But no, Bernie's not talking about Venezuela. But freaking AOC's not talking about Venezuela. Nobody brought up Venezuela. You brought up Venezuela. Nobody, they didn't bring up Venezuela. They brought up the rich tradition of democratic socialism in the U.S. They brought up, you know, the Scandinavian model. This is what people are talking about. This is basic economic stuff, man. And the, the numbers show those countries are way more successful than the United States is. In so many relevant uh, areas, they kick our butt. They kick our butt. Like I said, paid time off. They get a lot of it. We get none of it. Paid time off by law. I should be clear and say that. Um, healthcare system, their healthcare systems kick our butts. Um, education, many, um, many of the countries that she would describe as socialist have free college. And, and she would act like that's crazy. But, you know, we have free high school in this country. We have free elementary school in this country. Is that crazy? I mean, maybe she'd say yes, but if she says yes, that's a deeply unpopular position. So, it's just embarrassing. Like this is this is this is their front line of defense, man. This is this is what it is. It's uh, all the socialists are just Venezuela. How about you have a conversation with an actual socialist who's intelligent, who can break it down and can explain? Because me, I'm just a mild social democrat. But if, even if she attacks socialism, socialism, talk to Professor Professor Richard Wolf. He will run circles around you. Run circles around you. Uh, you know. Uh, ben Burgess would run circles around you. It would be embarrassing. Because when, you, when people explain it in simple terms, and their ideology and their philosophy, it's digestible and it's reasonable. And my guess is she would not be able to respond without insisting that they are saying something they aren't saying and that they support something and a government that they don't support. So that says something about the strength of her argument. That she can't like digest what the opponent is saying and then respond to it. She has to go, no, 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 you believe in Maduro, you believe in Venezuela, you believe in authoritarianism, and everybody be afraid. Well, I hope you're intellectually satisfied with, you know, strawmanning everybody from now until the end of time instead of engaging in honest discourse. Okay. Next. Here we go. Let's make fun of Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete um, isn't doing so well. His campaign kind of stalled out. And, yeah, I mean, I I don't think he's really viable anymore. If you asked me two or three weeks ago, I would have said him and Elizabeth Warren are hanging on for dear life. There's an outside chance they could win. Now it really looks like it's either going to be Bernie or Biden, and that's it. So I think he kind of gets that, too. Like, he, he senses it. He knows it. He's seen the numbers. Um, and 
he's a little frustrated. So this clip is him kind of expressing some <laughs> some of this frustration. Um, it's from one of his events. It's a glorious moment. And it might remind you of a moment we had in the last election. So we're going to look to you to spread that sense of hope to those that you know. Come on. <laughs> we're going to look to you to spread that sense of hope to those that you know. Come on. <laughs> Better so beautiful. <laughs> oh, that was so good, man. Oh, this is my I was instantly reminded of uh Jimmy Dore's Jeb Bush impression too that he did quite a bit during the uh the 2016 election, 2015-2016 primary. He'd be like, "Come on, guys. Come on, guys, give me a break. Come on, guys, give me a break." <laughs> oh yeah? I'll show you how tough I am. I wake up and I eat nails before I have breakfast. <laughs> Jeb had so many, like, underrated, hilarious moments and how sad they were. The other one was when he was giving a speech at, uh, you know, some club, and then they they were like, you got to go? And he was like, they're kicking me out. They're kicking me out. <laughs> I mean, I love to keep talking, but they're kicking me out. <laughs> oh, man. Mayor Pete has morphed into Jeb Bush. Low-energy Jeb. <laughs> Uh, okay, listen, but seriously, seriously, seriously. It's sad what we just witnessed, both when Jeb did it and now when Pete's doing it. And I'll tell you why. I, you know, obviously I'm in some sort of public space and I'm a politics guy or whatever. But every, I've, whenever I've spoken publicly, and I've done it many times, when I'm saying something, I have the exact opposite reaction to Mayor Pete and Jeb Bush in that when I hear the audience clap, when I hear, you know, an explosion of whatever, cheers, whatever it may be, my gut reaction is like, I wasn't done with my point yet, and I'm still talking, so like reel it in a little bit. (laughs) So my reaction is like a little bit like, all right, y'all, like you can calm down a little bit when I'm done talking, then if you want, you can clap. And I think the reason why I feel that way is I'm used to this format where I can just go, 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 go. And so sometimes when people are clapping, it could interrupt my train of thought a little bit. And then I got to, okay, what was I? And then I can get back to what I was saying. But, and don't get me wrong, who doesn't love the feeling of cheers for you or claps for you? So I enjoy it. But at the same time, I think like, damn, I, I really have a point that I'm making that I think is important, so I want to get it out and make sure I get it out. What Jeb Bush and Mayor Peter are doing here is the polar opposite, where the whole reason they're talking is they want to feed, they want to feel good, and the audience makes them feel good when they give them cheers, because they feel loved and appreciated when the audience gives them positive feedback, and they really want that positive feedback. But what that shows you is like that's why 
they're doing the talking. And then when they don't get that feedback, they're angry and they feel entitled to it. So like, come on, like, clap for me, clap for me. Another American Psycho moment or Joe from you moment, that's Mayor Pete. Come on, come on, let me just clap for me. And like, so I think that says quite a bit. And I think you notice this with Bernie too. Bernie ain't talking to get the applause, man. He ain't Lady Gaga living for the applause. He is, he's telling you things that he thinks are important and changes he would like to make. So I get the sense that he reacts in a similar way to what I was describing for me, where he's like, I, I wasn't done yet. <laughs> I'm trying to make a point here. Not angry, but like, okay, you could clap or you don't have to clap, you know, but I'm going to say what I have to say. And I think what I'm saying has weight and is important in and of itself, regardless of whether or not you're giving me positive feedback. You know, like Bernie went to go speak at Liberty University in the last election and gave a speech and said, hey, listen, we're going to agree on some things. We're going to disagree on some things. We're not going to agree on abortion. I'm pro-abortion. You're against abortion. But we can agree on certain economic things because if you believe in the philosophy of Jesus, well, so do I. And here are the things that I would support. And so he gave a speech there. I don't know how many applause breaks he got, but he didn't care because the message is the thing that matters. With Jeb and with Mayor Pete, the message doesn't matter. The message is just a conduit for them to get the appreciation of the audience, which they feel entitled to. Now, you could say I'm reading too much into it or whatever, but listen. Honestly, a well-balanced human being who thinks what they're saying is important wouldn't need to yearn for the adoration of the audience. If they clap, if they don't clap, it's whatever. It's whatever. Because the thing that's important is what I'm saying. To them, no, no. The thing that's important is you giving me praise. So if I don't get it, I'm angry. At least with Jeb, he was, like, kind of affable. You know, please clap. Like, it's almost, it's sad. With Pete, it's, like, a little creepy. <laughs> it's like, mm. Mm. whoa, 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 whoa. Mayor Pete with his Jeb Bush please clap moment. This is a lesson for everybody. Never, ever, ever beg an audience to react to you. <laughs> if they're going to react, fine. If they're not going to react, fine. You should care more about the substance of what you're saying. And if you care about the substance of what you're saying and you believe in it, and you believe in it and mean it, then everything else is irrelevant. It's just noise. You could be giving a speech to nobody. But the message is the thing that counts. Almost seems like, you know, Jeb and now Pete. Message doesn't even matter. The message, the substance, that's not, it's not about any of that. Just give me that adoration or else. All right, next. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was at an event on MLK Day with Ta-Nehisi Coates. And um, she said something that caught the eye of Democratic leadership and uh, centrists on Twitter. They weren't very happy with her. Let's see what she said. You know, in what you said earlier, too, I wanted to go back um, to what you said about our left party. We don't have a left party Mm. in the United States. Mm. The Democratic Party is not a left party. Mm. Um, The Democratic Party is a center 
or center conservative party. Mm. We do not advocate for, we do not, we can't even get a floor vote on Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Not even a floor vote that gets voted down. Mm -hmm. We can't even get a vote on it. Mm -hmm. So this is not a left party. Mm -hmm. There are left members inside the Democratic Party mm -hmm. that are working to try to make that shift happen. Mm -hmm. It's funny watching people get mad at something, which is unquestionably accurate. Because she's like, that's not even controversial. What she's saying to people who follow this stuff closely and really know about this stuff, this, you honestly file this under duh. But people were mad. They were mad at her. Centrists were mad at her. The media was mad at her. They thought like, oh my God, this is, like, this is wild that anybody would say this. It's true. <laughs> So listen, I mean, we could, there's a million ways we could discuss this, okay? But let's just give a few points. So one of them is the one that she made about Medicare for All. We can't even get a floor vote on it. We can't even get a floor vote on it. In polls, Democratic voters, over 80% of Democratic voters are like, yes, I support Medicare for All. When 80% of your voters take that left-wing position and the leadership says, eh, don't care, not on the agenda, what other interpretation is there? If they're a center or center-right party, that's one interpretation. The other one is also they're super corruptington, <laughs> like mad corrupt. And, you know, the Democratic Party takes various members of the Democratic Party take money from the for-profit health insurance companies, from Big Pharma. Also, by the way, take money from Wall Street, which is why many of them are for deregulation. Many of them take money from uh, the military and industrial complex, which is why Elizabeth Warren, Raytheon is headquartered in her state. She's taken money from Raytheon. And would you look at that? She voted for a bunch of Trump's military budgets. Wow. So, um, yes, they're a center-right party, and uh, they're also pretty corrupt. Now, AOC is an exception to that rule. Ilhan Omar is an exception to that rule. Bernie Sanders is an exception to that rule, but generally speaking, you know, probably 90% of Democrats are taking money, money they shouldn't be taking and doing the bidding of those donors. Now, the other example I wanted to give, because I think it, like, just, it so perfectly encapsulates her point, is Barack Obama. So Barack Obama is viewed, and he's got a, he's got a decent approval rating, you know, um, and He's generally liked, but the thing I always said about him is he's one of the most successful Republican presidents of all time in the U.S. Obviously, you know, you go Abe Lincoln, number one, for obvious reasons, but um, the reason I say that is his ideology, just like she's pointing out right here. So Barack Obama, for those of you who don't know, he cut small business taxes about a dozen times. Now, you could like that or dislike it, but it's definitely a center or center-right idea. He made 90% of the Bush tax cuts permanent. Could like it or dislike it, and I don't. That one I don't even think is that bad because it was the lower end that he made permanent. I'm fine with middle class tax cuts and working class tax cuts. Totally fine with that. But he did it. That's not exactly you know super left idea there. He um, he pushed for and got implemented Mitt Romney's health care plan, Newt Gingrich's health care plan a Heritage Foundation health care plan. That's a right-wing think tank because that was their response to what the left position should be, which is Medicare for all, single payer. 
Their response was, let's have a system where we keep the for-profit health insurance companies in control. Let's have a system like that. And the way we do that is an individual mandate. So just mandate by law that people buy private insurance. That's what his health care plan is. Now, again, you could like it or dislike it, but it's a right-wing idea. Literally, it is a, it, the origin is a right-wing idea. And the only time that the Republicans abandon it is when the Democrats took that position. So think of the Overton window. Think of the Democrats running to the right and then the Republicans responding by running even further right. So that's what happened. And there's other examples, too. Barack Obama could have been anti-war, could have pulled out of Iraq, could have pulled out of Afghanistan, could have ended the, ended the wars. He didn't. He was a war manager, and he used what's called in the U.S. soft power. Soft power is, hey, maybe we'll have some boots on the ground, but it'll just be like advisors for people in the region for them to fight, but we're still going to be there. And also we're going to use air power, we're going to use drone power, which he drastically escalated, by the way. These aren't left-wing ideas. Non-intervention is the left position. It's also the libertarian position. But he didn't do that. So when you go to the actual record, and I've just given, what, three examples there? I could go on all day, man. I have five, six, seven, eight different examples of Barack Obama being a very successful. He, most of his uh, years in office, he cut the deficit, just like Bill Clinton did. Center-right idea. So he's a very successful center-right president. So when she says this, I mean, it's like, duh. When you follow this stuff, you follow it closely like she has. She knows this stuff. That's why she says it. And when she gets in there and she's got all of Democratic leadership all the time demeaning her, putting her down, fall in line, fall in line, fall in line, what do you think she's going to She's going to sit there, uh, yes, can I have another, please? Like, just keep coming after me and keep disagreeing with me and keep downplaying my success and downplaying my ideology. She's going to keep it real and say, you know what? In a world that made sense, I would be part of the left party and the Democrats would be in a different party. Not even close to controversial in my book. I think she's 100% right and these comments are true. All right, next. Tucker Carlson did an interesting segment warning Republicans not to get too confident about 2020. That's pretty interesting. Uh, there's one candidate in particular here that he references on the left. Take a look. A year from today, we'll be hosting this show from the National Mall as the next president of the United States takes the oath of office. Will that president be Donald Trump? Well, as of tonight, Republicans in Washington feel confident that it will be. The official economic numbers are strong. The Democratic primaries are a freak show. Elderly socialists accusing each other of thought crimes. Republicans are starting to think that victory is assured. And that's a mistake. America remains as divided as it was three years ago. So no matter what happens, nobody is going to win this election in a national landslide. Those don't happen anymore. Trump could lose. Will he lose? Well, that depends entirely on what he runs on. In 2016, Donald Trump defeated more than a dozen Republicans and then Hillary Clinton by running as an insurgent, a man from outside the system, flipping the bird to the elites within. Virtually everything Trump said reinforced that message. The people who run this country are clueless. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't care about you. 
They've hollowed out our economy, crushed the middle class. They've screwed up our foreign policy. They left the door open on our southern border. Their children playing at leadership, and they've gotten rich doing it. The result is a national catastrophe. Now, Trump's campaign summed up that message in a single phrase, make America great again. In other words, let's not lie to ourselves. This is a disaster. The good news is we can fix it. Now, the people in charge hated to hear that, of course, because it implicated them. But voters responded. They knew it was true. And by the way, it's still true today. Things are a lot better in a lot of ways, but they're not fixed. Consider the state of the economy. The big numbers, unemployment and inflation, to name two, tell one story, and it's a good story. But dig a little deeper. A Pew poll from this fall provides a glimpse of what is actually happening in a lot of parts of the country. In that survey, 56% of Americans said the economy was excellent or good, and that's good news. But then there was this. Only 31% said the economy was helping them and their families. Just 32% thought the current economy was helping the middle class. 58% thought the opposite. Among lower-income Republicans, 47% said economic conditions were hurting them. Just 30% said they were helping. Now, keep in mind, these aren't sociology professors from the Oberlin faculty lounge. This is the president's core. It's his base. Why do they feel that way? It's not personal. It's just really simple. For a lot of middle-class people, wages are not keeping pace with expenses. Child care, housing, education, health care, they're all getting more expensive by the year. The student loan bubble is still inflating. It's burdening young people with debts so large they can't start families. Now, these are economic problems, but they require a political solution. The candidate who makes it easier for 30-year-olds to get married and have kids will win the election and will deserve to win. Remember that. It's truer than any economic theory conceived on any college campus in the last 100 years. Improve people's lives and they will vote for you, period. Republicans ought to write that on their hands. Otherwise, the temptation will be to focus entirely on the lunacy on display on the left right now. Democrats have gone crazy, and it's definitely worth pointing that out repeatedly. We do it five nights a week. But it's not enough to win. Winning candidates come with their own program. They convince voters they will make things better. Bernie Sanders may get the Democratic nomination, and if he does, every Republican in Washington will spend the next 10 months reminding you that socialism does not work and never has worked. And they'll be right, obviously. But if Sanders pledges to forgive student loans, he will still win many thousands of voters who went for Donald Trump last time. Why? Because debt is crushing an entire generation of Americans. Republicans need to make a plan to make it better or they will be left behind. Interesting. He semi gets it, semi doesn't. By the way, it'll be fascinating uh, to see if it's Bernie versus Trump, how Tucker walks that line where he still uh, does his whole uh, populism tap dance. Because when you have an actual populist running against a fake populist, if you take the side of a fake populist, that doesn't speak too kindly about your own ideology now, does it? (laughs) Now, by the way, he goes on to do the whole, um, you know, well, the left has gone crazy on social issues and the right should uh, make a case for conservative values, for family values. And he does a whole spiel on that. Um, On that, I think he's almost totally incorrect. You could argue that there is a point, as, when, as we've spoken spoke about on this show before, if you want to say that, you know, the, the fringe SJWs, like, they, they're an issue and you shouldn't agree with them, I'm with you on that. But he takes it above and beyond that. Because on the actual policy goals, 
for social issues, the left is correct. The left is correct. The left are the one, you know, we're the ones pushing for legalizing, uh, taxing, and regulating marijuana. That's a left-wing movement. You know, it's the Republicans who just banned flavored vapes. It wasn't a Democratic president who did that. Trump just did that. So that's, you know, that's an authoritarian. Those are authoritarian positions on social issues. The left, on the policy issue, whether it's abortion, hey, hands off from the government, live and let live, you know, marijuana, hands off, live and let live, it should be legalized. So uh, on the actual policy issues, I think the left, gay marriage, the left is correct on that. The left is correct on that. So I don't think that like arguing for, you know, social or, or conservative social values is necessarily a political winner. In fact, I think it's a political loser. I think the only way that they could spin it for it to be a political winner for them is if they overfocus on the SJWs and act like they're representative of the entire left. And, uh, you know, that's how they can weaponize that in their favor when, by, you know, saying like, oh, look, here's a few fringe examples of the left being against free speech. Therefore, you know, every lefty wants to march into your house and frickin' be thought police and lock you up for doing wrong things. If they spin the issues to focus on that, then that could be an advantage to them, but it's also just massively misleading and silly. So anyway, I digress from the social issues point. I think he's wrong on that. Um, you, again, you didn't see that part there. That comes after. But um, he's right when he says, hey, Trump ran on Make America Great Again, meaning, hey, it's not great right now, meaning I'm a change agent, and that worked. And what he's saying is Trump should do that again. Namely, in a not-so-subtle way, he's saying, dude, cut it out with the Keep America Great sign. And I've talked about this on the show before. If Trump goes all in with the Keep America Great argument, it ain't going to work. Why? Because people don't feel like it's great. If he keeps going with Make America Great again, then people can relate to that more because they think, okay, so the job's not, work's not done, and we're not doing great yet, but Trump is going to keep trying to make us great, and so it still gives him outsider appeal when he says that. If he goes with keep America great, the 78% of Americans that are living paycheck to paycheck are going to go, it ain't great. I don't feel great. Even if they voted for him last time, keep America great. What's great? And, you know, the thing that they point to, like you said, is like the stock market and the unemployment rate. Yeah, but the unemployment rate is not the accurate unemployment rate. You double it to get the accurate unemployment rate. The U6 or U7 unemployment rate, that's the accurate number. The one they give is, is juiced. It's, it's nonsense. And Trump used to point that out. So the unemployment rate, put that aside, you're also ignoring the underemployed people, which is massively important to this conversation. And like I said, 78% of the country living paycheck to paycheck doesn't matter how well the stock market's doing. That's a reflection of the rich and corporate profits. Well, over half the country doesn't even have stocks. You're going to talk about the stock market. Unbelievable. So silly. So, and this is what Tucker's pointing out. And then, you know, he goes on to make the point about student debt. And interestingly enough, this is an issue that Trump even admitted behind the scenes in a report in the Daily Beast about a year ago, uh, people close to Trump said, he said other Republicans are too confident uh, about 2020 because socialism, quote, won't be so easy to run against. And the exact issue he brought up, the exact issue, he brought up one issue, debt relief. Debt relief. So, you know, if you go all in on student loan debt uh, relief, medical debt relief, Trump knows, like, I can't, it's hard for us to argue against that because that's popular. It, at face value, people are going to like that idea. And 
Um, he recognizes that, and he has more of an instinct for what a crowd wants than other elite Republicans. Trump is an elite Republican, but he has that instinct where he can play to a crowd more. And what Tucker's doing here is he's warning him, man, don't do keep America great, go back to make America great again, go back to hammering on anti-establishment themes, go back to pretending like you're not, you know, a free market Kool-Aid drinker, um, even though Trump is. And um, he's warning that uh, Bernie is, Bernie, I think, is the one they're actually afraid of. I do think that. The smarter ones are afraid of Bernie. The dumber ones, like uh, Hugh Hewitt, he was arguing the other day that he's going to vote for Bernie because he thinks Trump would destroy Bernie, so he's voting for Bernie in a primary. First of all, thank you for voting for Bernie in the primary. Wonderful. <laughs> it's great. But you're a moron because Bernie's going to win uh, if he's up against Trump. So anyway, that's interesting. Tucker Carlson is more aware on these issues than other Republicans. But again, he will out himself. If it's Trump versus Bernie and he does what we all think he's going to do, which is be pro-Trump, that's su- you're just outing yourself at that point. You ain't no damn populist. You're not. You're not. That's elitism through and through. Trump might campaign and lie and pretend he's a populist, but when your tax cuts go, 83% of the benefits go to the top 1%. You cut the corporate tax rate. You gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Seven million people lost their health insurance under your presidency. Um, You know, thousands and thousands of jobs were outsourced. You renegotiated NAFTA to still be NAFTA. It's still not good. Don't give me the silliness, man. That's a fake populist against a real populist. And if he ends up backing the fake populist, which we all think he would do, then spare me your, uh, you know, your rants here because it's all just a game. Okay. The Bolsonaro government in Brazil has charged Glenn Greenwald with cyber crimes. Um, so he released a short video discussing this on Twitter. It cuts out at a little bit of an awkward time. I think he didn't realize there was like a time limit or whatever in the video. But anyway, take a look. And by now, you probably have heard the news that there has been a criminal charge brought against me by the Bolsonaro government in retaliation for the series of journalistic exposés we've been publishing and reporting since last June, showing high-level corruption in the Bolsonaro government, in particular by his Minister of Justice and Public Security, Sergio Moro. A few facts about this criminal charge. First is that, as you probably know, the Bolsonaro government, President Bolsonaro, multiple members of his government simply don't believe in a free press. They don't believe in press freedom. They don't even believe in democracy. They've repeatedly and explicitly praised the military dictatorship that ruled the country until 1985 is a superior form of government, and this is all about ushering in that level of repression. Secondly, the prosecutor who brought the charges just a couple of months ago unsuccessfully tried to bring similar charges against the head of the Brazilian Bar Association who criticized Minister Sergio Moro, and he tried to claim that that criticism constituted a crime in Brazil, and it was rejected by the courts. He's obviously somebody abusing his prosecutorial power to punish the political enemies of the Bolsonaro government. Third, 
The police, the federal police conducted a comprehensive investigation of our reporting of our sources and concluded in a report published just a couple of months ago that everything shows that I never committed any crime. Much to the contrary, I always exercise what they call the highest level of professionalism, caution, and responsibility in ensuring that I was doing my work as a journalist and never got anywhere near a crime. We're going to defend a free press like we always have. We're not going to be intimidated by the Bolsonaro government. I'm continuing right this very minute to work on our next series of stories. This is an attack on Brazilian democracy. So uh, this guy has balls of steel. I mean, you have to call for what it is. He, uh, what he did with Snowden, for example, is, and this is, you know, there's mountains and mountains of evidence of this, that he and Snowden went through line by line the leaks that they were putting out there to make sure that they weren't releasing anything that actually should be top secret or classified or out of the public eye. That's what he did. So, and actually, Greenwald and Assange have had disagreements where Glenn says, you know, basically, hey, I think you should curate the stuff you release just to make sure that nothing gets out there that actually shouldn't be out there. And because uh, Assange is more of a, like, I'm just going to release it all when I get my hands on it. But Glenn is like, okay, I'm going to actually go through this with a fine-tooth comb to make sure I'm not releasing anything that in any way could, you know, actually damage national interests or put people in danger or whatever, okay? And he's always been like that. He's always been massively detail-oriented, and he's also always tried to do that which is right. Um, This guy is one of the most principled guys I know. And stop and think about this. Bolsonaro, who's the head of an authoritarian government, this dude basically threatens you and says, oh, yeah, you're committing cyber crimes, and, you know, you, you've committed a crime here. That's a warning shot if I ever heard one. And Glenn is like, I'm not stopping. Oh, you think I'm going to stop? That's cute. If I was in his position, man, I'd be on the next plane out there. <laughs> but that's me. This dude has balls of steel, and this dude is like, no, the more you come after me and it's unfair, I'll double down, I'll triple down, and watch out. Watch out. That's amazing. So, you know, has he done anything actually illegal? No. He has been relentlessly reporting on corruption. He's been relentlessly reporting on corruption inside Bolsonaro's government, and it's really embarrassing the corrupt officials. And so now they're trying to strike back. So, you know, and I'm sure he believes this too, low-key, but what are you going to do? You want to make a martyr out of him? I mean, you could, but the legend only grows. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, would never, I don't want anything ever happen to Glenn. He's a great guy. He's a friend of mine, and I'm proud to call him my friend. Um, and, but, like, he would become way more powerful if you try to do anything to him anyway. Because you're just, like, further proving his point. Further proving that he's correct and he's, you know, like, fighting the good fight and crusading for truth and, uh, you know, exposing the powerful. And if you respond in a negative way, if the government responds and does anything bad here, it's like, 
way to unify everybody against you now. And I've, I've been very, you know, uplifted by the number of people who have come out in support of Glenn, even people who don't agree with him on many political things. And they've said, no, this is what it is. Like, it's a rank attempt from an authoritarian government to silence criticism and criminalize journalism. That's what's happening here. So Glenn is super brave. We should all be thankful that Glenn exists and people like Glenn exist who really put their neck on the line. Thank you to Edward Snowden. Thank you to Chelsea Manning. Thank you to Julian Assange. Thank you to Glenn Greenwald. Because this is as heroic as it gets, man. This is, you know, this makes me feel like a little boy because I do not think I have the courage that he possesses. And um, he, solidarity with him, and I commend him for doing such incredible and brave work. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. In the Now is a news and politics operation. Um, journalist Rania Kalik works for them, as well as uh, Dan Cohen. And I want to show you part of a segment that they did telling the truth about General Soleimani and Trump's assassination of him, giving a little bit of history around this guy. And then I'm going to tell you what happened after. Take a look. brought the Middle East and beyond to the brink of a regional war. It could have killed many thousands of people and destroyed the global economy. All of this so President Trump could boast about killing Iran's top general, Qasem Soleimani, the man who basically saved the region from falling to ISIS. But Trump says he was actually a huge terrorist and a ticking time bomb who was born to kill Americans. If you've been watching Western media lately, you think Trump was telling the truth. Soleimani, a notorious terrorist. Soleimani was a deadly thorn in America's side, as we've been talking about for years. Soleimani almost singularly focused on killing Americans and our allies for nearly two decades. So there should be no discussion about him being anything other than that. Back in 2014, these same media outlets plainly reported the truth that Soleimani was fighting ISIS. In recent weeks, the Iraqi military has made key gains against the forces of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And few military minds have received more credit for those battlefield wins than this man, Iranian General Wassam Soleimani, the leader of Iran's elite special operations, God's Force. Yeah, so um, everything that was said there is totally factual. The rest of the video is completely factual. Uh, they're just stating the history. And as a result, look what happened. Rania tweeted, Facebook censored Dan Cohen's In the Now tweet segment on Qasem Soleimani, which you can watch below, by removing it from ITN, that's In the Now's page, and demonetizing In the Now. Facebook has been deleting posts that ch challenge U.S. government war propaganda against Iran. This is blatant censorship. Guys, that is what this is. There's been censorship as well of uh, Max Blumenthal's The Gray Zone, where he talks about similar issues, U.S. foreign policy, and talks about the history that, you know, gets kept from us in this country, if you watch mainstream media. So, They've gone a step further now, just so everybody knows. All the screaming, oh, my God, like Russian interference and 
it's so bad, and they're trying to swing elections and all that stuff. Now they're taking real journalists doing real work, and they're like, uh, I don't like the message of that. Pull it down. We think you're doing propaganda for the enemy. Pull it down. But what do you do when it's true that Qasem Soleimani was one of the reasons ISIS was defeated, and he was our ally at the time? You're not allowed to point that out? You're not allowed to talk about that? What else are you going to say we're not allowed to talk about? And that's the point, is that just like we've heard stories of um, Facebook censoring pages for Israel, like pro-Palestinian groups, censored. Now they're doing it. There's obviously the U.S. government and Facebook are in bed, and they're going, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. Censorship always hurts the left, always hurts the left, because we're actually challenging power. Ronnie and Dan Cohen are challenging power. Max Blumenthal is challenging power. And so they got to try to take them down for it. So congratulations for everybody who wanted censorship in social media and everybody who was screaming, oh, my God, like Russian interference and whatnot. They're going to use that to take down truth tellers and to bolster the narrative of the U.S. government and do the bidding of neocons. That's what's happening. This is rank censorship. And by the way, this is why the First Amendment should be expanded to include the, the internet public square, the social media public square, because that is the new public square. So, you know, the, you, we should lean heavily on the side of free speech, and only in the very fringe cases should any action ever be taken when it comes to people speaking their mind on these social media platforms, because they are definitely, the powerful are going to use this as a tool to censor truth tellers, and that's what this is. All right, guys, we are out of show, baby. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.